Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. There's a sound effect. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. Uh, I am just a film critic. I don't have a cute nickname. I don't have any uh, any other gossip to add. But with me is the stellar mind and the towering intellect of my scintillating co-host. Please introduce yourself, sir. Yeah, no pressure. Thanks, Whitney. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am also a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, this episode of Critically Acclaimed is a little different. It's really huge and a little lopsided. Uh, <laughs> we've missed a couple of weeks of Critically Acclaimed. Uh, for those of you who've been following along, I've mentioned on a couple of the podcasts, mentioned on the Patreon page, maybe Twitter as well. Um, it's been a rough few weeks for me. Mm-hmm. We've had some deaths in the family and... Some other mm-hmm. stuff I can't even get into. It's just been really, really rough. And I've been trying to stay on top of everything I can, but staying on top of new releases was particularly difficult just because there's a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what ended up happening was we had to make a command decision. Do we put out an episode of Critically Acclaimed this week and have Whitney review most of it? Or do we wait a whole other week? And we decided that it's just going to keep piling up and getting more ridiculous. we got to get this episode out there. So Whitney is reviewing... Most of the movies, and by most of the movies, <laughs> we have a critically acclaimed streaming club. We're two weeks behind on it, so we're going to be reviewing the classic horror films, uh, Theater of Blood, and Let's Scare Jessica to Death at the end of this thing. Yes, both of those. Yes. Uh, we, we, those are both voted on by our patrons. We're doing them both. Uh, we will also be reviewing together the new Adam Sandler Halloween horror comedy, Hubie Halloween. And then Whitney, solo, I will contribute as much conversation as I can. Mm. We'll be reviewing the following films. <laughs> <clears throat> Possessor, Yellow Rose, The Wall of Mexico, The 40-Year-Old Version, Charm City Kings, The War with Grandpa, Trial of the Chicago 7, Black Box, Totally Under Control, and American Utopia. Yeah, not so have, many. You didn't have to watch all those. Well, a lot of those I did because I was going on KCRW last week. Oh, okay. And uh, KCRW uh, like to have three or four films at least. Sure. And sometimes they have you watch extras just in case. So I already had a lot under my belt when you said we need to delay it a week. So I was like, well, I guess we'll just roll it forward and have next week be a super a king-size episode. I am sorry for the delay. I know, I know we've had a lot of people asking where this episode mm-hmm. was. I feel terrible. But we're just going to have to move on. Uh, so here we are. Don't feel terrible. You're a film critic. You review what you review. And I'd like to yeah. hear... I'd like to hear about Hubie well, Halloween. There's, there's a because lot... Because I'm staying the hell away from that. Oh, you didn't thing. see this one? No, I did not I see Hubie I assumed you Hubie did. Hall- of course I, I thought, didn't. I thought we were actually going to have a back and forth on one. Nope. Dang it. Okay, well... well we're we're going to have a back and forth on American Utopia because you are the big Talking Heads fan between the two of us. Well, yeah, but I didn't see American Utopia. No, okay. but you can give, maybe give me a little bit of background on the Talking Heads that right. I might not be privy to. All right, fair enough. Well, in any case, uh, let's, just get, let's just jump right in because hmm. obviously that's a lot of movies. And let's talk about the movie which, you know, if, if history is any indication, is probably the one most people are going to watch. The Adam Sandler film, QB, Halloween. How sad is that? <laughs> this big pile of films, and the Adam Sandler film is the one where people are going to grab. Well, no, people like Adam Sandler. Uh, mm. People like Adam Sandler as a person, near as I can tell. A lot of people love working with him. He tends to attract these big, giant ensemble casts, and mm. everyone always like reassembles like Voltron in order to put mm. up whatever you know fart movie he wants to do next. Because apparently, he, people like working with him. That's yeah. cool. I don't know um, anybody who loves his movies anymore. I, I know it's like a bit of a phenomenon, like. 
back when he got started in the nineties. Oh, he was huge back in the nineties when he because he was on Saturday Night Live. Mm. He had some comedy records. He did the Hanukkah song, which was you know huge, like still is. But I think it was a charting hit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then yeah, he his first. His first movie as, like, a big star, he'd done, like, a couple of little comedies, but his first, like, post-SNL big movie was mm. Billy Madison, which was critically annihilated at the time. <laughs> it wasn't that big a hit. It's actually very funny. That's actually one of his better comedies. It's, it's been a while since I've seen it. It's I, very, it's I very... I remember it being uh, just kind of delightfully absurd. It, that's the thing. It's incredibly absurd and a bit more imaginative than many of his later films. Uh, and he followed that up with a series of films which were broadly comedic, but had a little more heart than you would expect uh, from mm. comedies at the time. Happy Gilmore is still quite good. The Waterboy is pretty good. Never saw The Waterboy. Yeah. Big Daddy is okay, but it's not mm. great. Uh, Little Nicky has, is really imaginative, but it's just not funny. Um, and, of course, The Wedding Singer was one of his big breakout hits, where he stopped being just this like dude comedian and started becoming a little bit more family-friendly. He became a romantic lead. Yeah, and, and, uh, and, and indeed, it turned out he had great chemistry with Drew Barrymore, and they've worked together multiple times since. Um, and over the course of his career, he's had several forays into, quote-unquote, serious filmmaking, in which he's made you know films like Punch Drunk Love, mm-hmm. or Rain Over Me, or The Meyerowitz Stories, and but usually those are very well received. Uncut and Gems Uncut, is one yeah, of the best films of the last year. And, and Uncut Gems, which yeah. is probably his best movie. I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. I, I, I really love Punch Drunk Love, but I think Uncut Gems is the new champion. It's mm. a really excellent motion picture, and he's amazing in it. Um, but it seemed over time that he started getting, as a comedian, as a broad comedian, a little lazy. His plots started getting a little less interesting, a little less inspired. The jokes started falling back on more potty humor than he really needed. And the thing that was most distressing... They they became crueler. That's the thing. That's the thing that became distressing. Because initially, I think the early wave of Adam Sandler movies, even the ones that weren't particularly good, like Little Nicky, just not that funny. Hmm. But they had a good heart. And somewhere, and I, I actually have trouble pinpointing the exact film, like where this shifted. Somewhere they got really mean spirited. Yeah. Somewhere, and I think it's a combination of they hit a certain degree of cynicism where they started getting way, way, way more into like product placement. Mm-hmm. Like Jack and Jill, halfway through the movie, it just stops to be a commercial for a cruise line, like a real cruise line. It yeah, just and, stops the movie dead. It's and a, kind of disgusting, a, a, actually. Many critics have, in fact, noticed that he gets together these huge ensemble casts of f- famous people that are friends of Adam Sandler's. Yeah. Uh, sometimes he convinces a big star to, like Al Pacino is in Jack and Jill. Yeah. And, uh, playing and Johnny Depp back when that was a good get. And uh, they usually take place in exotic locations. And these things have astronomical budgets. From what I understand, Jack and Jill cost like $80 million to make. I heard it was 70, but it was a lot. It was a lot. More more than you'd expect for a film like that. It's a stupid comedy in which Adam Sandler Mm. plays his own twin sister, and she's embarrassing. That cost in the 10, like over $50 million, that movie. Mm. Shot by Dean Cundey. Well, (laughs) that's. Directors of photography go where the world is. That's true. That's true. They're, They're. they uh, they shoot really great films. They shoot really bad films. They just do, do the work. And Look, uh, I was free that month. You want me to shoot this on an iPhone? <laughs> okay, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, um, uh, but yeah, it, when uh, I 
I didn't like Little Nicky. I thought it was quite bad. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like you said, it just was not funny. It wasn't that it was hateful. And I'm trying to remember the first Adam Sandler film I saw that really just rubbed me the wrong way. I know mm-hmm. it happens sometime around That's My Boy. Oh, That's and, My and Boy that, was the last straw for me. Yeah. But Jack and Jill had already come out. Jack and Jill was my breaking point. Jack and Jill mm-hmm. was like, listen, I don't like everything he does. I think some of his stuff is just... Look, comedy is a matter of taste. It, it always is. Mm-hmm. Um, what you find funny can be very individual to you, but and, and I'm usually pretty forgiving about that, I think. But uh, there comes a point where you just become... It just feels like you're punching down instead of punching up. Yeah, And that's where it stops being fun for me and starts feeling like we're in with the group of bullies at the high school who yeah, are really I mean... immature and just making fun of people. And I felt that too many... Adam Sandler movies had that mentality or dallied in that mentality. Grown Ups 2 is a great example of this mm-hmm. where ostensibly he's supposed to like save his son and teach him like was his son he has kids and he's supposed to save mm-hmm. them from like bullies and you know whatever but, but they end up but, doing that by bullying the bullies and ultimately perpetuating the cycle. Yeah. And yeah. I get somewhere in there you had a you had an a, a, an earnest decent thought but you got real. It got really lost in the mm. weeds, and just realized that people don't seem to be thinking these movies out very much. Yeah, his, his, his constant fetishization of the 1980s has become incredibly tiresome as well. That's harmless, but it is kind it's, of ridiculous. It's, it's annoying because he's no longer commenting on it. Yeah, he's not saying he, like Wedding Singer was, was pretty funny about it. Actually, well, Wedding Singer was set in the 80s. There's mm-hmm. there's been a lot of films since then though that really kind of fetishize elements about the 1980s. Uh, Pixels. That was, uh, Pixels is is a prime example. Directed uh-huh. uh, by Chris, Christopher Columbus. That one. So yeah. that's oh, it's a big it's, visual effects it's, interesting. Yeah, visual stuff in there, but uh, like there, there's a scene in Grown Ups too where they're going to like an '80s party. Oh, that's the whole um, climax. It's like 20 minutes. Yeah, of the there's uh, that, that was a big costume. element of yeah. of uh, that's my boy. There's a lot of like yeah. '80s nostalgia and callbacks. Like to Vanilla 80s Ice culture. is yeah. actually a character playing himself. In yeah, that yeah. Movie. Um, and again, he's he's not. All I can tell is that he seems to be uh, vaunting this as sort of like a golden time from his young adulthood. Sure. That he really, really enjoyed, but he's not – when he puts it in a movie, he's not making a comment on it. Generally not. And other fan, than course, just to say that it's something and, he likes. And Sandler is, like, co-writes some of these movies. Like, he mm. co-wrote Hubie Halloween, but uh, – and, of course, he's definitely very hands-on with his films, but he doesn't actually direct them. He's just one of those actors who just feels like their mm. personality and style is guiding the project more than any particular director is. Yeah. Um, so, in any case – uh, I, it, with the exception of the occasional art house film and the Hotel Transylvania movies, which are really good, yeah, uh, those those, those to, ones are fun to varying degrees, but they're all very very fun, like actually funny family films. Mm. Um, I'm not a huge Adam Sandler fan, so with that being said, QB Halloween actually pretty good. <laughs> okay, all, I, right. I, all that build I'm, up just to point I'm out that not, this one's actually not bad. I'm not sure if I believe you. No, tell no, no. tell I, me I'm about actually, Hubie I'm actually Halloween. with this one. Right. Um, so, Hubie Halloween takes place uh, in Salem, uh, and uh, it's obviously a very big Halloween town. And Hubie, played by Adam Sandler, uh, is a very childlike. I, I, I guess he's like fifty by now, but like he's a very childlike man hmm. uh, who. What a surprise! He's he's. It's it's interesting that they said it in Salem because it turns out like his family was uh, someone who actually spoke out against the Salem witch trials and was immediately burned as a mm-hmm. witch, uh, and it establishes Salem as a place that ultimately hasn't changed much. Mm-hmm. It's still full of bullies. Yeah, 
and Hubie as a decent, kind human being who cares about actually, like, protecting the community and is just, like, assigns himself, like, safety coordinator for Halloween. And he's, like, riding around on his bicycle telling kids, okay, one candy each. Hey, 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 make sure you look both ways when you cross the street, that kind of thing. Um, he cares about people. He cares about his community. And the community hates him. Hates him <laughs> so much. And it's full of, like, it's, it's one of those Adam Sandler movies where everyone is, everyone is a big actor. Like, the guy who makes fun of Hubie at the deli and calls him Pubie for the right. first, that's like they only came up with this for the first time, which is, shows you just how bright his bullies are. That's Ray Liotta. <laughs> oh, God. Ray Liotta shows up in this just to be oh. mean to Adam Sandler for a while. Uh, we got Michael Chiklis as the local priest who was bullying Adam Sandler. Mm. You got, uh, uh, let's, I would say, Tim Meadows is bullying Adam Sandler. You Tim, got uh, Tim Meadows? What a gentleman. <laughs> he plays a bully? <laughs> well, anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's a talented enough actor. He could pull it off. He, he just, he's, 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 right. he's mean. And indeed, everyone uh, in the movie is uh. very, 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 very mean, except for... Uh, Adam Sandler and Julie Bowen, who previously played Adam Sandler's uh, eventual girlfriend in Happy Gilmore, and I think this is the first time they worked together since. So mm. it's kind of fun to see him together. Yeah. Um, they went to school together. She's always had a crush on him, but he's always been very callow, and they've never just sealed that deal. Um, this Halloween, things are a little different. Oh dear, things are getting a little, little creepy. He's got a... Oh, and I mentioned, by the way, Adam Sandler's mom is played by June Squibb. Of course awesome. she is. She's great. Um, he's got a new neighbor played by Steve Buscemi. And Steve Buscemi's just like, Hey, it's good to meet you. I'm the new neighbor. Hey, listen, if you ever hear any weird noises from my house in the middle of the night, uh, you, you probably shouldn't investigate that. Mm. And he's like, Oh, okay. All right. And then he just next time he sees uh, Steve Buscemi, he's like boarding up the windows. Like, oh yeah, don't mind me. <laughs> Is this the plot of the movie, or is that just a running gag? It's it, you don't know. Oh, okay. you don't know. But what happens is uh, also at the beginning of the movie, uh, a a uh, a potentially dangerous lunatic has escaped an asylum. <laughs> okay. Both of these things have happened. Are they related? Who knows? Maybe there's multiple horror things that are going to happen tonight. But what happens is. While Hubie is running around town trying to keep everyone safe and happy on Halloween, and while everyone is being incredibly cruel to him, all of the bullies in town start getting, like, abducted into the night by some mysterious creature. <laughs> and, of okay. course, nobody believes Hubie. Hmm. So he, it's up to him to try to find a way to save the town that hates him. That's, uh, that's, that's a fun idea, That's I pretty suppose, good, yeah. actually, because nobody believes him, nobody likes him, nobody trusts him. It sounds like They're, a Joe Dante kind of premise, like does. the burbs or something. Yeah, and, it, and of course it leads to the... It, he's such a kind-hearted person that it takes him a while, but eventually it does occur to him, like, should I save everybody? Like, do they really deserve it? Like, it does occur to him eventually, but ultimately, this is that rare Adam Sandler movie where, for the most part, there's a couple of times where... It gets a little hazy in terms of, like, where the morality lies. Like, is it okay to bully your bullies? Like, mm. that comes up, like, twice. But for the most part, it's actually a movie about kindness. It's actually a movie about the importance of being decent to people who are, in turn, decent. And how you shouldn't treat people who are willing to take abuse with abuse. Mm. 
And on top of that, there's actually some really fun stuff in here. It, much like uh, we were talking about Grenham's 2 had that big, like, 1980s flashback party uh-huh. where everyone's dressed up in fun 80s costumes and really most of the imagination in it went to people's costumes. The costumes people wear in this are actually really cool. Like, They're the costume guys. designer had fun, <laughs> like, making this. Like, Tim Meadows has this amazing costume where he's, like... Uh, Frankenstein, but he's carrying his own head, and of course his head is his actual head. So okay. he's got like this, like big shoulders. Up yeah, above his it's, head. it's yeah. just a delight to see. Clearly, everyone just mm. had a lot of fun putting together this movie. So it looks Halloweeny. It looks okay. kind of spooky. Um, it's not full of giant laughs. Like I didn't laugh constantly throughout, but I laughed more than I often do in an Adam Sandler movie. Okay, I I did enjoy watching it. It's a kind of Adam Sandler movie where oftentimes even like the stuff that is so-called family-friendly, I feel just the tone is off or maybe the mm. messages are off and I wouldn't recommend it to families. But actually, this one's pretty good. All so right. I just kind of like this one. I think this <laughs> is actually like – this is Adam Sandler's – I haven't seen all of them. Like I missed that whatever murder mystery one he did for Netflix. Mm. But I've seen most of his comedies in the last decade or so. And yeah. – um, this this might be the best that isn't Hotel Transylvania. So maybe just Adam Sandler and horror is a good combo. I think it's it's fitting when he can sort of roll with his persona, which is just mm. like a slightly dangerous, wrathful person. Mm. So putting that in a horror setting mm. might be what what you're picking up on. But the difference here here is that he's the opposite of that. Here mm. he's so used when, back early in his career, he played the guy with an angry streak. In fact, that's yeah. what Punch Drunk Love. He was, was in a was film about. Called, he was, well, he's in a film also called Anger Management, yeah, which was, is about that as well. Yeah, it was fun to see him let loose because he was often very put upon. But here in in Who Be Halloween. He never does. Mm. He's just decent. And I think maybe Adam Sandler forgot that it's possible to like him when he's just being decent. He doesn't have to be crass or mean. It's a little bit of crassness, but it's not too bad. Like, mm. But like, he doesn't have to like play the Adam Sandler gross out angry like, shit. He can actually like that, just that be like, yeah. yeah, he can actually just be decent and that's enough. Okay. And I think it's one of the reasons why the wedding singer was so popular. It just he was just nice, and he's yeah. good at nice. So, yeah, I think this is actually a very, very fun. I mean, it's not like four star movie or anything like that. Mm. But this for Adam Sandler comedies, this is upper echelon. This is at least <laughs> one of the better ones he's done in a really long time, and I liked it. So okay. I actually do recommend this broad Adam Sandler comedy. I'm shocked. I was a little, well, I was pleasantly surprised. 2020's Topsy Turvy. This right? a, a, a Hirokazu Koreeda film came out this year, and I didn't like it. Right. So and, listen, then, and then a Michael Bay film came out, and I did like it. This so is this is why when people say. say like, "Hey, is this movie going to be any good?" I'm like, I I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. I don't care who I don't care who directed it. I don't care who's starring in it. I don't care what it's about. I will not know if it's good until I actually sit down. Because if you asked me, hey Bibbs, do you think Hubie Halloween is gonna be one of Adam Sandler's better films? I would probably say no. And now here I am telling you the exact opposite because I actually watched it, gave it a chance, and I kinda liked it. It's you know, it's it's a middle of the road comedy in a lot of ways, but again, if you like Halloween stuff, if you have any affection for Adam Sandler or that whole like class of comedians mm. and if or if you just like silly comedies that's cute i dug it good for them neat excellent okay. yeah. i don't know what, what more do you and, want and from that. all right let's move on tell me all about right. possessor uh possessor is the latest uh sci-fi freak out from brandon cronenberg who is david cronenberg's son ah 
Uh, and the so, apple has fallen far from the tree and, and then rolled back yeah, towards right. the tree. <laughs> but, the, but the tree is in the bottom of a canyon, so the apple's <laughs> just going to stay right next to it. Um, there's a lot of David Cronenberg's influence in his son's film uh, because this is very much a, a body horror type movie. Although this is a lot more slowly paced and uh, deeply stylized than a David Cronenberg movie. There's a lot of you know ab- abstract soundscapes and weird color experiments going on. Uh, the story of Possessor is uh, Andrea Riseborough from Mandy, mm-hmm. she was Mandy, uh, plays an assassin for a shadowy government organization which is run by Jennifer Jason Lee. And they have a very specific MO. They have a special sci-fi machine that allows Andrea Riseborough to like shunt her consciousness into an unsuspecting person, and that person is the assassin. And then when she is finished with the assassin... Her, she forces her host body to commit suicide, and then she, she's off the hook. Mm. Uh, and of course, this film, although that sounds like the fodder for like maybe like a Keanu Reeves or Will Smith type of science fiction thriller, mm. uh, this film is far more thoughtful about that. It's about sort of the mental pressures that the Andrea Riseborough character undergoes, and the plot of the movie is they, there's this new uh, titan of industry that they want assassinated, but she has to put her consciousness into this man who is going to be uh, this uh, this uh, champion's assassin and learn to live like him for a little bit as to, you know, to belay suspicion. Mm. So she has to learn a lot about him, but uh, she also has to fool this guy's girlfriend. And over the course of being inside this man's body, she begins to have this crisis of identity. Mm. Of course, his consciousness starts to push through here and there, and she's not sure how much of that is her mind actually deteriorating from this process. Uh, Oh, it's like when Invader Zim became, like, Robo Santa and the Santa consciousness started to like maybe take over his consciousness and he didn't know if he was the Santa or if the Santa was him, right? Yeah, if, if you liked watching a Nickelodeon cartoon from the early 2000s, you'd probably wa- like watching this incredibly bloody, super violent, psychedelic uh, science fiction film. You joke, out. but when the cartoon is Invader Zim, that's probably true. Actually, yeah. <laughs> Invader Zim is fucking twisted. Um,. Uh, but I, I really appreciate this kind of weird contemplative style. There's a really wonderful sex scene where you get to see uh, Andrea Risebroke experience this weird sort of out of body uh, uh, kind of uh, kind of I guess it's sort of like a, a dramatization of gender dysmorphia mm. because she's in the in the body of a heterosexual man. She's a straight woman, and we're not really sure where her gender or sexuality lies for a few moments, uh, and. Over the course of the film, it's about how uh, it, it ends up uh, turning into sort of a revenge plot and uh, who the man is and who Andrew Riseborough is and everything gets all jumbled up. But it's it's pretty thrilling. Uh, it's pretty... It sounds cool. Like, it's a it's, cool idea. It's, it's a sounds, cool idea. It's and very it's, Cronenbergian. I mean, let's be fair here. But, but I appreciate that it's not presented in any kind of conventional thriller way. It's mm. not about the thrills. It focuses on the violence and in, in how unsavory and unpleasant and bloody it is rather than how exciting it is. It is about assassinations, but it actually bothers to question a, the efficacy of assassination and b the actual rarity and ethics of assassination. It's not like this cool side gig that somebody has, like we usually see uh, assassins have in movies. Assassins, 
appear in movies so often you'd think it's just like something you can a job you get after college uh i appreciate that assassination is something kind of rare and unusual and bloody and horrifying and something that's eroding your soul uh and in this case almost literally is because you're putting yourself into the body of another person it's a really cool idea it's really disturbing there's a lot of really nightmarish stuff in it uh the mask you see on the poster is really really horrifying in context Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, Brandon Cronenberg won some sort of uh, science fiction award and he, award and he accepted it online wearing the mask, ah. which is like a, it's like a leather face skin mask. It's really horrible looking. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm now drawn to any genre picture that Andrea Riseborough is involved with. She's typically got good taste. I've only seen like a couple of like Andrea Riseborough genre films that weren't amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular this year's The Grudge was, a well, it's not a particularly interesting entry in that mm. franchise. Mm. Um, and I don't know. I, Oblivion is beautifully designed. I just don't think it's much of a story. I like Oblivion. I, yeah. Great design. Mm. Great looking movie. I just couldn't get wrapped up yeah. in it. I, like, I liked her in Birdman. Um, she was... Uh, what else did I see? She was Mandy, of course. But I was, mm. I was trying to think of like what other genre films I've seen her in. Um, I, I don't usually yeah. look that up. Cause she, I know she was in Happy Go Lucky as well, the, the Mike Lee movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she she's a, a great actress, and she seems to have good taste in projects. So uh, if if she's going to make more of these sort of genre freakouts like Mandy and like Possessor, mm-hmm. I'm I'm all over that. Great. Mm-hmm. All right, well let's move on. Okay, what would you like to hear about next? I don't How know. About- Tell me about Yellow Rose. <laughs> okay, uh, Yellow Rose, uh, directed by D- Diane Parag- Paragras. That's on you, man. Par- Paragas. I, I okay. looked it up. Okay. I was try, trying to remember off the you top of my head, and I'm bad. Uh, Yellow Rose is about a teenage girl. Her name is Rose, whose mm. mother is uh, apprehended by immigration and thrown in a border camp. Ugh. And she is left behind in Texas with nothing. She's got nowhere to go. Her mom was apprehended by police for being an illegal, and now she's on the run. Mm. Well, being an, an undocumented immigrant. Uh, illegal is uh, the term. Me, really you're, you're right. I'm sorry. That, yeah. That's that's slang. I need to strike from my yeah. vocabulary. We, we all need we all need to unlearn shit. She, like that. she is undocumented and she is yeah. uh, completely unfairly treated. And while part of the movie is about her trying to find some sort of legal recourse to get her mother back in the country, it's now looking like she too is going to be deported, even though she's never lived anywhere but Texas. Right. Uh, she does have a passion, and that is old timey country music. Huh. And she begins busking for a little bit while she's staying on the run, and she ends up falling in with an older couple who run a country western bar in Texas. She ends up staying with uh, this this married couple, like in a back house of theirs, and they're going to say, "Well, you know, it's okay. We can look after you. Can we can hide? We can help you hide out so long as you help out with the bar." Uh, that sounds like a pretty cliched narrative, doesn't it? About how she finds a little bit of redemption through country music, and she has a white savior. This film very smartly avoids the white savior part of the narrative, because it's actually revealed that this elderly couple, while they're generous and they're going to care for her, aren't going to be her savior. And In fact, they even say, we're only going to look after you for a little while. And there's no way we're going to... There's this wonderful conversation that they have halfway through that really undercuts a lot of what you might expect from this movie where it's revealed that the couple has no interest in looking after her long term. Mm -hmm. And they're only going to look after her for a while. And 
after a while, it starts to feel like uh, not just a salient look at the modern immigrant experience, the modern child of immigrants experience, but also a weird sort of country western riff on Eight Mile, where uh, the triumph comes not from any kind of legal plot reason, but actually just discovering that you can consider yourself a great artist under really averse circumstances, which is what I see Eight Mile as being about, the Eminem film. Yeah, I think that's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, what, what I appreciate about Eminem, it's, you know, the the uh, the Eminem movie, uh, is that it's not so much about him triumphing or winning big or... Some, Getting a big some, record contract. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the movie, the big climax is he just wins a rap battle among the locals. Yeah. And it doesn't get him any kind of money or personal glory or redeems him from any kind of circumstances. Mm-hmm. It just proves that he can he can do it. He proved it to himself. Mm. That's all you need. It's the yeah. the local rap battle version of Rocky. Yeah, that's, that's this, what that movie is. And probably. I feel like Yellow Rose taps into that in a very smart way, where uh, Rose finds that she actually does have a passion, and now she's torn between this ultra-American identity that she's trying to run towards and her family legacy. Huh. Uh, Rose is played by, let me look up the actress's name, uh, Abel, uh, Ava Noblezada. Uh, she's a Broadway star and she, she's young. She's excellent in this movie where, uh, she really has, um, you can see her like fighting for dignity and almost reaching it. Is, are this, are, is it all original music or is she playing like old standards? Or? She's, pl- she's playing old standards. Okay. Yeah. Is, like, it, is it like one of those movies where you just want to go out and get the soundtrack or is it not really that kind of? A... Well, there's not, there's not a huge amount of music. In okay. It. So yeah, it's, it, the movie doesn't stop for a lot of musical numbers. I wish it had actually, yeah. that, that would have made it stronger. It but sounds it, like a lot of like indie movies that we used to get like out of the out of the nineties, like Little Voice or something like yeah. that, where like you would see the movie and then mm-hmm. be like, "I'm going to go to my local Tower Records mm-hmm. and I'm going to buy that soundtrack right now, so I can mm-hmm. relive the movie before it comes out on home video." Mm-hmm. I'm old, <laughs> <laughs> but I really liked the like, Yellow Rose, and, That's yeah, great. and 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 I think Ava Noblezada is is really somebody to keep an eye on. Great, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay, tell me about the Wall of Mexico. The Wall of Mexico is, hmm, have you heard of a guy named Brett Easton Ellis? Because the makers of this film sure have. Oh, that's not a great story. <laughs> it was directed by Zachary Kotler and Magdalena Zizak, and it is about a little Mexican town just over the border that is, uh, it's so far removed that they say it's kind of its own country. Okay. That it's this sort of little ultra-rich oasis in the middle of uh, just barren fields. And uh, it's it's uh, overseen by a, a super wealthy uh, Isai Morales. Okay, good actor. And it stars Jackson Rathbone as a young uh, sort of garden hand, just like the, the working help, who is uh, forced to you know, look after the really rich ultra-decadent, ultra-opulent, kind of self-styled philosophers within this ultra-wealthy enclave. Got it. Uh, He has caught the eye of the two wealthy daughters who, you know, invite him in to have their really decadent parties, and he does a lot of cocaine, and they seduce him in one scene, and then they just treat him like dirt, all the while having these 
really insufferable college-level philosophical discussions about the place of class in modern America and, dude, in, and modern dude, Mexico. Dude, you don't understand. I took a sociology mm. class last semester. Yeah, so these So these I are, know what you don't know. So here's some, like, these two young, wealthy women straight out of Brad Easton Ellis' novel taking way too much cocaine and having these really pretentious conversations about class. All the while, we're seeing it from the perspective of the the working class white man who works in Mexico. So I think they're trying to do some inversion, yeah, some sort of like like racial class inversion or or cultural conversion. And the center of the plot revolves around Isai Morales' well. Evidently, they have a a well of ancient well water that is the only water they ever drink. And over the course of the movie. He, he He's really, really protective of this, and he's hired armed guards to keep people away from this well, and he's building a wall to keep people away from the well. And there are protesters from America who keep on saying, tear down the wall or build the wall. There's, so there's, there's some weird political commentary in here that I'm not quite understanding, uh, and it's implied that this well water is keeping Isai Morales and his daughters and his family perhaps immortal. So there's also this element of magical realism going okay. on. This film is insufferable. How sufferable is it? <laughs> it is insufferable. It's Got so it. sufferable, it's insufferable. Uh, it thinks it has a lot on its mind, and I'm not sure if it does. I think uh, it, it's bringing up a lot of provocative topics without coming to any kind of point about them. It is trying to sound like it's smart. Uh, and I think that's the big... And I, this is why I liken it to Brady Stanellis. I think a lot of Brady Stanellis' uh, work is told from the perspective of some intelligent people who think they have big ideas, but their minds and their lives have been kind of ruined by Hollywood, usually Hollywood, or just American excess drugs and wealth. Right. And they, they're, they have no morals, and their souls have completely eroded away. Uh, and I think his point is that this sort of brand of American excess is the kind of thing that can turn insight and intelligence into something kind of ugly. Well, um, that can happen. Yeah. Yes. You look at uh, the main character from American Psycho, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's about this yuppie who is defined only by greed and wanton uh, uh, physical desires. Yeah. Uh, but – He's also like a college-educated guy. He understands no, no, a like lot, the, but it's not in service of anything. Like capitalistic success <coughs> can often be at the expense mm. of both individual and sociological morality, mm. which can lead to hollowness of being. Yeah, this is not new. This is Ebenezer Scrooge for crying out loud. Mm, like yeah, it's mm. yeah, it's, it's which a, is fine. It's still a good point. Mm. It's it's still relevant. Mm. Uh, yeah. the, the thing with uh, Brad Easton Ellis novels is that there's no three ghosts. It's just Ebenezer <laughs> Scrooge pre-ghost visitation, and that's the whole story. It's like if Ebenezer Scrooge... If Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge. If Ebenezer Scrooge did a lot of coke. Yeah. <laughs> what if he did a lot of coke and he slept through the ghosts every night? You're going to be visited by three ghosts. They got some blow? <laughs> I... This isn't quite as as like edgy or pointed. This, but it's it's kind of in that same camp where they're yeah. trying to say some kind of salient criticism about modern day greed and uh, and the relationship between America and Mexico, which has been completely inflamed by our racist president. Yeah. Uh, but it's not like I said. It's not coming to any kind it, of point. It's really hard. I, I will say this: it's really mm. hard to have a point 
about current strife when we're right in the middle of it. Uh-huh. Because we don't have context. Mm. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. We don't know what the ultimate lesson... I mean, some of them are pretty obvious, I'll grant you, but like, we don't necessarily know the best way to frame the story yet. Mm. And I've seen a lot of people struggle to tell stories about what's going on right now. No. And I think that's a big part of it. We're just a little too close. And we can't really see the forest well, for the trees yet. And some people manage the, to do it. And some people manage I, to make great movies. But yeah, it's and, hard. And, uh, and, it's hard. But I, I think uh, rather than try to achieve some sort of context or point of view about modern times, the filmmakers are instead just leaning full bore into cynicism about yeah, it. Well, that's and that's and yeah, that's cynicism is I find often the opposite mm-hmm. of maturity. Uh, it, it it can be wielded smartly, but it needs a deft hand, and mm-hmm. these filmmakers don't mm-hmm. quite have that. I was going to say cynicism uh, as a in its purest form, mm-hmm. cynicism without other things to temper it. There you go. If you're purely cynical, you're probably yeah, it, not getting much out of it. I, I think there's there's a, a good deal of value in cynical art. Uh, sure, just trying to look at something that people are typically idealistic about and dismissing out can be kind of daring. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this this doesn't have that, That's that daring. Well, tell me about the 40-year-old version. Okay. Nothing to do with the Steve Carell movie that I'm aware of? No, not a damn thing. Just uh, that movie is old mm. enough now that we can do plays off of the title, mm. and it's fine. Yeah. Um, which, okay, mm. cool. Just th- th- That one took me by surprise. I assumed it had something to do with it when I first read the title. And I found out it did not. No, not not a thing. Yeah, and I, this is one, I will say this. I have had people whose taste I... I mean, I trust my own taste overall because I'm a critic. I, I have to. But mm-hmm. like people whose taste I generally go, well, if they like it, it's probably worth seeking out. have really highly recommended mm-hmm. this film. Uh, the 40-year-old version is one of my favorite films of this year. Dang it. It's okay, I will so, see it. It's so good. Um, I'm mad I missed this one. This one was as, at the top of my... I really got to try to make yeah. time for this. And I just couldn't... I'm so mad at myself. I am so sorry. I really want to see this movie. The, this debuted at Sundance as a, a kid who grew up in the 90s watching a lot of indie films about uh, people struggling on the streets of New York. Yeah. Uh, this one really just sort of lit my heart aflame. <laughs> um, Rada Blank plays a kind of a version of herself. This is a semi-autobiographical story. As a 40-year-old playwright who uh, has sort of hit a creative wall. She's had writer's block for a long time. She had a big hit earlier in her career, but she's never been able to match that success. Now she's struggling to stay alive by teaching drama to kids who don't really care. And because she's 40, she's reached this point where she can't really relate to the kids anymore. She's no longer seen as, like, relevant. And now she is just sort of disgusted with the the uh, theatrical scene that has kind of rejected her. Yeah. Uh, not outright. They don't hate her. It's just, they didn't really find anything they wanted to do. With is there, her. is there a place for her? Right. Yeah. That's and, yeah. and she's really disgusted because the high moneyed world of New York is run by wealthy white people. And their idea of what a 40 year old black woman should write is very specific and kind of disgusting and racist to her. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, well, she, like, she has a play that she's been working very, very hard on, which is just about ordinary people uh, trying to keep a convenience store open during tough times. And it's not about uh, racial tension. It's not about violence. It's not about culture clash. It's just about trying to make ends meet. It's a working class play. Mm-hmm. And all of the 
the white investors are saying, mm, well, that's not interesting enough. And when they say it's not interesting enough, she hears it as that's not black enough for us. Mm-hmm. And so she's really, and then they say, Hey, how would you feel about directing our new, like Harriet Tubman musical? And mm-hmm. she's just like rolls her eyes and slaps her head and just doesn't really know what to do with her life until she realizes almost by accident that she has a gift for rapping. Oh. She you know thinks up like some funny rhymes here and there, and she uh, she's also a, a, what I appre- and I really appreciate this forty year old black woman who's just unabashedly horny. Okay, <laughs> single black woman sees a, a white guy with a really big ass is like wow, look at that ass. <laughs> just stop and like ogle the, these men walking down the street. Dibs. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and so uh, and in fact, the, the credits roll over one of her raps, which is called "White Man with a Black Woman's Butt." <laughs> she just loves, and so yeah, she's like really horny. She starts like singing these funny rhymes about these butts she's looking at, and that leads her into uh, kind of rediscovering herself. She mm. ends up going to uh, uh, a fellow who knows how to lay down beats. He sells beats for local rappers. Okay, she's like, well, can you lay down lay down a beat for me? And he l- listens to a couple of his samples. He seems really distant at first, but when she raps, he becomes very interested. He's much younger than she is, but they start to form kind of a romance as well. And meanwhile, her play begins to get a little bit of traction, and it's all about all of these dramatic things that are sort of interplaying in her life. Golly, I love this movie. Golly, I love Rada, this character, who is just flawed, wise, really smart, and unique. She doesn't really have a place which you know make, makes her this very relatable character. Uh it's and we we say this all the time on this podcast. The more specific something is, the more universally relatable it is. And I feel yeah. that way about Rob. Well, I love movies. Like, and again, I didn't see this, mm. and I'm mad because mm. ev- now now everyone I know is opinion I trust tells mm. me it's great. Um, I, there used to be a very popular subgenre of independent film, and it's still out there, but it used to be a thing mm. of like middle aged people finding their new passion. Or finding a great hobby that changes their life. Well, a lot of British films. A lot of British films. Did Saving this. Grace, Calendar Girls, Full Monty, etc. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite movies of the '90s, uh, Shall We Dance? Japanese oh, film yeah. about a middle-aged uh, uh, Japanese businessman who just takes ballroom dancing classes. Mm. Doesn't become the greatest at it, but it sort of rejuvenates his uh, zest for life, mm. and that's enough. And it. Beautiful, yeah, wonderful but movie. This, this is actually, a, it's a pretty long movie. It's like two hours and ten minutes, so it's yeah. just sort of breathing. It's taking its time. It reminded me less of those kinds of comedies, mm. which have a, a sort of quirky charm to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then uh, it did something like Wayne Wang's Smoke, something that's actually really kind of conversational. Okay. A little bit more real and down to earth. It's shot in black and white, I, too. I guess my, I guess it my also point, invites the comparison. Obviously, I, I couldn't speak to the yeah. tone, but I guess my point is I like stories that aren't about... Um, the issues of youth, which it feels like the vast majority of films are most of the time. Yeah. Or they're not about issues that revolve around age at all. They're like mm. conspiracy theories or, you know, Transformers are fighting or whatever. But like, I don't know. I'm getting older and I'm starting to appreciate stories that are actually like about how being older isn't incidental. And yeah. is actually yeah. full of its own stories that are mm. often overlooked. I find in a lot of media, and I just find it really exciting to hear that there's a good one of those. Yeah, yeah. And and I also appreciate it when the narrative is nuanced enough uh, 
to go beyond the old cliche of we still got it. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's like, yeah, I can go to Vegas and I can party with the best of them because mm-hmm. I'm Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman, and whoever else was in that movie. It was Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. <laughs> what a cast! Last Vegas. That's an amazing cast for a dumb movie about them going to Vegas, mm-hmm. getting drunk. And having sex. There are way too many movies out there about like pathetic dads who are trying to prove to the world that they're they could still, they still got it. essentially they could still like bone oh. young women if they wanted to. There's a, there's this movie. There's a series on HBO Max. I, I've mentioned it before, and for some reason I'm blanking on the name because it's a little uh, from the. I think it's called like So Close. Uh, but saw mm-hmm. uh, saw a Hong Kong action movie called. So yeah, Close. that's what I think. It's what I'm confusing. Uh-huh. Hold on, I'm going to look up HBO Max animated series. <laughs> But it's about, like, people in their 30s who, like, they have a kid and they're just, they're just trying to, like, get by in life. And it's all about little adventures. Uh, It's on the creator of Regular Show, which is all about little adventures you find when you're in your 20s. It's about little adventures you find when you're in your 30s. And there's this one episode um, where they are convinced by, like, a younger roommate that they have uh, to go out and uh, party. And they're like, yeah, we're going to party like we used to. We're going to dance. We're going to drink. And at the end, we're all going to go to Denny's and get a giant brownie. And then they go and they dance and they drink and they're having a great time and they're ready to go. And that's when they find out it's 930. <laughs> and they're like, no. We can't handle this anymore. We're too tired. And the, whole, and the whole thing ends up becoming like this weird. Uh, like Logan's uh, Run. Yeah, I showed you this one. Yeah. yeah, it becomes Logan's Run. But it's all basically about how getting older is fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine, not this man. thing to be afraid of. It's fine, and it's full of its own wonderful adventures, and that's great. Like, when, when, I really want to... My 20-year-old self would be so ashamed of me. Yeah, your 20-year-old self is probably kind of dumb. It's called Close Enough. Close Enough. Okay, really not, funny sitcom. Not so close. Really funny animated sitcom. Please check it out if you haven't seen it already. I really mm-hmm. like it a lot, and I recognize a lot of it. <laughs> like, a lot of it. Like, there's this bit where... I don't have kids, but, like, it's like there's this bit where, they're like, they send their daughter off to, like... uh uh like stay over at a friend's house and they're just like oh we got the night to ourselves baby we can get errands done (laughs) (laughs) awesomely doing their taxes and washing their car (laughs) just have time to do all that stuff love it Anyway, so uh, that sounds amazing, and I'm totally yeah, going to check for, that one please, out. Please, please, please watch the 40-year-old version. It's on Netflix. I highly, highly recommend it. What is Charm City Kings? Charm City Kings, uh, is directed by uh, Angel Manuel Soto, is a film about Baltimore biker gangs. Awesome. It's about uh, some young kids, about 14, who really idolize, uh, from Baltimore, who idolize all the local Baltimore biker gangs. Uh, cool. The main character, ha- a fourteen-year-old boy, um, uh, I don't know. The character's name is Mouse. Okay. Um, I love it when you pause. Normally, when you pause, that's like my cue to like remember. No, like, it's who's, just who was in that movie, and here it's just like eh, I'm just sitting here. No, it's just me having a brain fart. Um, People at home, I'm just as curious as you where he's going with this. <laughs> the character is named Mouse, and he is an aspiring veterinarian. He's actually very, very good with animals. Okay. He wants to work at the local vet. In fact, he already has sort of an in with the local vet. But the allure of those biker gangs. <laughs> and and the biker gangs, like, they do, like, out, what, what, outdoor what? street races, sort of, like, Fast and Furious style. Okay, but so this, these are, like, young biker gangs. These are, like, cool kid biker gangs? 
Uh, adults, but you know they're no. But I, here's the deal: I grew up with bikers. My dad uh, oh, restored British motorcycles. Not like not like middle, not like fifty year olds. Yeah. weekend warrior Harley guys. Well, these he are wasn't like, a weekend yeah. warrior. He was just these were just mm. older motorcycle enthusiasts, yeah. and those were the biker guys that I knew. Guys okay. who were just like, "Hey, man, any motorcycle made after 1970 is bullshit." <laughs> like those guys. <laughs> no, those that's those are the bikers I grew up with. They're wonderful human mm, beings for the are, most part. Th- yeah. These are the kind of guys who like to race up and down Baltimore streets, and the cops hate them. And they run off before the cops shut down their their uh, big events, which you know, of course, tracked crowds of hundreds. Uh, I describe it like Fast and the Furious, but this is not at all stylized like Fast and the Furious. Mm. There's no like close-ups of revving engines. People aren't dressed really cool. And it's actually butts. a real. It's yeah. There's no none of those like booty girl close-up shots. I would love to see every some, Fast and Furious. Th- you movie. could do like this surprisingly long supercut of all of the incidental shots of butts mm. at these various car races in the Fast and Furious movies. Don't actually make that supercut because if you do, it will only be sexist. But like <laughs> if, you, you, if you watch it and you. You know that just like that would be a really long supercut. These movies might have a problem. <laughs> Cars are metaphors for ass, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Mouse begins to, you know, he wants to be part of these biker gangs. He thinks they're they're really, really cool. Of course, and of course, it turns out they're also criminals. They have criminal enterprises on the side. Some mm. of them are running drugs. Some of them are stealing cars. Mm. And he gets involved in uh, ever-increasingly dangerous criminal activities and... Uh, it's not long before he feels like his only future is to start committing crimes on his own. He right. becomes more and more at risk as the as the film goes on. The style is very nice that they actually kind of kept it a little bit street level. They have, There's a lot of local Baltimore coloring, which is clearly very authentic, even though I've never been to Baltimore. You can kind of tell when a, f- a filmmaker is really familiar with their surroundings and understands the spirit of a place. Yeah. Even if you don't understand it, you they know the to... way cameras move and the things they look at tend to be things that are very... Uh, recognizable to locals that's even if the they're thing. not recognizable that's, to That's what I love. Outside. When you're looking yeah. at any, like if you've, if you've lived in any place where they film movies, hmm. there's two kinds of movies. There's the movies that only care about like the major touristy locations and they're only going to show like that one street on Los Angeles hmm. or, or the Santa Monica Strip or the Hollywood sign or whatever. And then you'll see a movie like Drive, which a lot of it takes place in Century City. <laughs> right. And it's just sort of just like that guy hmm. knows L.A. Yeah. That guy spent enough time in L.A. I know he's not from there, but he's hmm. spent enough time in L.A. that he knows it usually doesn't look the way it looks in films. If, if you want to see a movie that shows Hollywood the way it really looks, watch Tangerine. At some go. point. Tangerine is very, very much, like, right by Hollywood forever. Yeah. Like, that stretch of Hollywood. It's, yeah. like, j- a very specific block. Um, so I appreciate the, the Baltimore authenticity. Uh, I felt that way uh, whenever Ben Affleck makes a movie that's set in Boston. So oh, yeah. He, he, yeah. he knows Boston. The town's a great-looking movie, yeah. yeah. The, the, the town, especially. Um, unfortunately, the story is... Really predictable. Yeah, we've it seen this. A we've seen this sort of uh, kid falls in with a bad crowd kind of story before, so you will not be surprised at all. Uh, There's no twist. No the new twist. Does no kind of work though, right? I mean, it's just it's just um, kind of kind of kind of been been there, done that. It, it works if you're willing to sell it in almost a melodramatic sort of way. Mm. Or your style is so strong that you're able to bring sort of a new point of view on it. Like I was saying with Possessor. Yeah. That that sounds like a, a kind of typical sci-fi thriller, but it's so stylized and so violent and so strange that it becomes its entity an entity unto itself. Okay. I feel like Charm City Kings doesn't quite reach that. That's uh, the, the The cliches, unfortunately, start to shine through, although I appreciate the, the passion behind the filmmaking. All right. Well, tell me mm. about the war with Grandpa. I assume... Mm. 
Grandpa is like, hmm. you know, in a tank and like ready to go to war with you. Oh, in a ta- like in a, a battle tank. Yeah, you know, like that James yeah. Garner movie, Tank. You said a tank, and I'm picturing uh, picture somebody like in a tank of water, like Weapon X or something. No, I picture no, no, he's in like the mermaid costume. He's in like that <laughs> thing by the pier. So, uh, <laughs> Robert De Niro plays a mermaid in the War with Grandpa. He doesn't really. Okay. This is the second film in recent memory with the word grandpa in the title that Robert De Niro has been in. After Bad Grandpa? After Bad Grandpa. Mm. Was that awful? No. Wasn't that the Johnny Knoxville? Which was the Johnny Knoxville? One of... Worst grandpa. Worst grandpa. One one was a bad grandpa. One was an awful grandpa. I forgot. They're all grandpas. I'm looking up Robert De Niro grandpa and seeing what comes up. The Worth Grandpa is a PG-rated well-lit sitcom piece of shit from the Hollywood cookie cutter. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Not to mince words. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, It's directed by Tim Hill, who did like one of the, who did Alvin and the Chipmunks. Dirty Grandpa. Dirty Grandpa, excuse me. One was bad, one was dirty. Yes. Uh, That was the the De Niro one. The De Niro one was Dirty Grandpa. Yeah. Uh, The Johnny Knoxville was Bad Grandpa. Understood. And they're both great. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, one of them was an Academy Award nominee. That's true, for, for makeup. Yeah. Bad grandpa. Bad grandpa yeah, for yeah. makeup. Because Johnny Knoxville played an 80-year-old man. Yeah. Uh, in this film, Robert De Niro plays a widower who is uh, just a grumpy old man who gets in trouble with his local grocery store because he can't figure out the self-checkout. And he gets impatient and just shoplifts. And evidently this has happened a lot. So he has to move back in with his daughter. He's played by Uma Thurman. Uh, and his daughter has to clear out her 11-year-old son's room so he has a place to stay. The 11-year-old is incensed. He has to move into the attic. Evidently, that's uncomfortable, even though it's bigger than his room. And it's actually a really nice place. And in, uh, in order to get over their mutual resentment, they sign a declaration of war. They're going to go to prank war. Against each other. Against each other. And they play pranks. Like... Making gross cookies or <laughs> losing a marble collection. That's really important okay. to Robert De Niro. Does which, At what point mm. does Uma Thurman like trick her way into the Copacabana Club in order to be part of Grandpa's uh, Mambo show? <laughs> that doesn't happen in this movie. You're because, confusing that with a different movie. Because all of that sounds like an episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> That's how old these stories yeah, are. Yeah, this is this is old trope. Um, the De Niro grandpa gets to hang out with his buddies, and we have cameos from the likes of Christopher Walken okay. and Cheech Marin. Okay. Uh, Rob Riggle plays I like the, Dad. I like that. I like that. The, Robert De Niro is... this is, the first time De Niro's been in a movie with Christopher Walken since The Deer Hunter? It's a weird... Right? No, I, th- I think they've been in a couple I together. I would hope but, so, yeah. right? Because that just seems like a... Hey, remember The Deer Hunter? Okay, mm. now fart in my face. Like... <laughs> And uh, and he has he has sort of a love interest played by Jane Seymour, uh, who is going to help him in this prank war against his grandson. But this film isn't brave enough to do anything that is truly caustic or dangerous that would make mm. it entertaining or give it any kind of character. So Grandpa is playing a prank war, but he never actually wants to hurt the kid. Wow. And the kid is never actually wants to hurt Grandpa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. There's these weird waves of actual, like, good feeling at heart. Like, part of the prank war reveals that the young boy has a bully at school, and Grandpa goes to school and takes care of the bully. Like, shouldn't this be more 
hateful. It, it makes well, there's two ways of doing this. It there's, makes there's, Home there's, Alone look like bad lieutenants. <laughs> like it's got no that's, edge that's whatsoever. That's the DVD. Yeah. Um, oh, there won't be a DVD for this. It's um, <laughs> sad, really, if you think about it. Um, there's two ways to do this. There's the like really cynical, like. Todd Salon's version, which is really just hateful and cruel. Uh-huh. And then there's the silly version, which I guess is what they did. And yeah. uh, whatever. You just, or, or, here's, here's what it boils down to. Here's mm. this, what a movie like this boils down to. In a nutshell, this is all that matters. Mm. There comes a point in, in most screenwriting terms that I've heard, and I know mm. these terms evolve over time, so maybe I'm out of touch. But um, you set up the premise, you set up the characters... And then finally, after the first act, you get to the fun and games, which is all of the promise of the premise, hmm. just unfettered plot yeah. isn't getting in the way. You just and get you just robots the, fighting each other. The and chaos that you're, yeah. you've been waiting for. Yeah. So in this case, hmm. that would be the big montage of Uma Thurman and Robert De Niro with surprise pranks on each other. And if hmm. that montage is full of unexpected pranks... And good well, comedy, that could be worth well, bothering with. Not, not Uma Thurman, the, the kid, and, and Robert De Niro. Oh, I thought Uma Thurman was the kid. No. Oh, because um, it's, it's, not, the, it's her dad. Yeah, it's the grandpa. Okay, it's the war with grandpa, so grandpa the war with the dad. Kid. I, for yeah. some reason, I was Uma Thurman. That's a more interesting <laughs> movie to me. But it's, da- okay, so it's dad, it's a grandpa and the kid. Hmm. They're playing pranks on each other. And there's going to be a montage. Surely there's a montage of them doing various pranks. And the pranks are hopefully surprising. And are the pranks in that montage, just that one montage, just that one three-minute chunk, Mm. are they surprising and funny? No. Then fuck this movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that it, out, it, it, that it was your is, one job. You had to get that one montage well, and, right. And it does all, it all climaxes in uh, the – Uma Thurman also has like a six-year-old daughter who's really into Christmas. Like that's her, her thing. Oh, she's like, okay. hey, I have my iPad. want to watch – all of these Christmas specials. It's mm-hmm. not Christmas. Yeah. And she's like dressed like a Christmas elf and she wants a Christmas birthday party. Mm-hmm. So I guess you could call this a Christmas movie if you want. Whatever. And she has a Christmas birthday party and, and the pranks of course go hideously awry at this birthday party. Right. That's the big climax of the movie. It's about ruining a little girl's birthday. Cool. If you like, p- please, please, please sharpen this thing against something. Well, I'm reminded of the way you brought up how it mm. should be caustic or family-friendly. Mm. Uh, you may remember, and this movie's probably, this movie was a big hit. It led to several sequels and a TV series, mm. and nobody talks about it anymore. Problem Child. Yeah, something like Problem Child, which is, that's an angry film. Problem Child was written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who would mm. go on to write Ed Wood, mm. The People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon. Mm, my name is Do- Dolomite is my name. Yeah. yeah, these are excellent screenwriters. And one of their first like big things was a comedy about a kid who was being like, a, it, was, it was a foster kid. Mm. And he was lashing out in really clever, vicious ways and really putting foster dad John Ritter through the ringer. Mm. And the original version as intended was supposed to be a very dark comedy. Doesn't he eventually murder them in the original draft? It was supposed draft? to be, like, really bleak. Yeah. And somehow, that at probably, presumably, like, after, like, Home Alone was a big hit, mm-hmm. that got, like, like diminished, you know? That just the volume got turned way down on that sucker, and it turned into <laughs> a more family-friendly thing. Like, oh, isn't this kid hard to deal with? But if you look at the film, it's still weirdly mean-spirited. It's, yeah. And like it's just the, kind of halfway, and mm. it never quite gets one or the other right, and I'm really surprised it was ever a hit. 
like the the kid walks into the ha- like this really nice house, his new foster home, and he just looks around, and his first line of dialogue is, "I hope you guys are insured." Like he <laughs> like he's hell bent on destruction. This kid, yeah. and he takes glee in the pain. Yeah. There's no glee and pain in this one. It's just a family-friendly blah. Yeah. Well, let's move on. Mm. Uh, okay. So we got still got pff, quite a few more. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh, trial of the Chicago Seven is about the trial of the Chicago Seven. Um, Interesting. It's uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, whose screenplays I tend to like a lot because he uh, he understands, and this is something you once said. Good dialogue doesn't cost extra. Yeah. Uh, it's You can actually have people say interesting things and be witty. And I've always liked Aaron Sorkin's banter, even when he's making movies that I don't necessarily like, like Molly's Game. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I, here's my thing with Aaron Sorkin, and I, 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 I liked a lot of Aaron Sorkin mm-hmm. movies. They're also I very dude-centric. Well, they are so. very dude-centric. That's mm-hmm. totally a thing. Uh, but, for example, I think A Few Good Men is a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Steve Jobs is quite excellent. Moneyball is very, very good. Mm. Charlie Wilson's War is extremely underrated. Yeah, I feel. yeah, yeah. Um, but um, and of course the Social Network, which is one of his better ones. He's also one of those writers who has a very distinct style. Mm. And once you've gotten used to it, you yeah, can see him. You can see kind of like how formulaic his wit is. <laughs> like no, he that's, does that's, this, that's he follows fair, the same fair, yeah. follows the same patterns over and over again and they work for him. Hmm. But after a while it's kind of easy to start writing him off a bit because even though they adapt well to different stories or different true stories, hmm. you can just kind of see him being Aaron Sorkin after a while. Yeah. So I, I there are times well, where it feels like he's just going through the Aaron Sorkin motions and there are times when he's making a really hmm. good story. Well, th- this is about the trial of the Chicago 7. If you don't know it, in, in the late 60s, there were a lot of protests in Chicago uh, against the Vietnam War. And uh, Abby Hoffman and a lot of other uh, really important counterculture voices were part of this. And there was a riot. And this, uh, the trial was very famously trying to pin the riot on these kind of freewheeling, free-spirited uh, hippies, yippie types, mm. who are just trying to kind of damn the system and instigate a little bit more of a culture war mm. uh, while these really uh, stuffed shirts are trying to keep them down. Uh, this feels like a Latter-day Spielberg film in that it's taking uh, an historical event and using it to parallel a lot of the protests that we've been seeing just this year. It's yeah. incredibly timely. And uh, that makes sense when you learn that Sorkin actually wrote this for Spielberg. Yeah, that was the original uh, intent. The original. And this feel, and I, I imagine if Spielberg had made this, a lot more people would be talking about it. As it stands, it's still quite good. And it has that kind of Spielbergian sheen to it. My my fantasy casting, we've all have mm. like, oh, one day, mm. you know, this person will play Spider-Man and it'll be perfect or whatever. Mm. I've always wanted Gabby Hoffman to mm. play Abby Hoffman. Why do you want Gabby Hoffman to play Abby Hoffman? I don't think she's I a think really talented actor. She is very talented. Yeah. Uh, do you I don't see, know. It'd just be fun. Do you see that movie? She was in Crystal Fairy. No, I didn't see that yeah, one. I heard it was really it's, good. It's a really good one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Check out Crystal Fairy. Hmm. Um, That's I, all I have in terms of so, insight on this, by the way. That was just like, did, well, did you ever notice how Abby Hoffman and Gabby Hoffman sound alike? That's actually a joke in the movie. Uh, cause, cause, uh, yeah, Gabby not, not, Hoffman? Not, not, not Gabby Hoffman, oh, okay. but uh, the judge presiding over the Chicago 7, who in the film is played by Frank Langella, and he's really this kind of old world, really kind of racist, conservative asshole, yeah. who's also named Hoffman. So he mm. has to like say right at the start, I just want it known that 
Uh, even though my name is Hoffman, I have no, no relation at all to Abby Hoffman. I, if you know anything about Abby Hoffman, he's complete loose cannon. Yeah. But he had, you know, some very important ideas. I actually think Abby Hoffman's a really fascinating character. They made a biopic about him a couple of years ago called Steal This Movie. Uh-huh. I say which, a couple of years ago. It was a decade which, ago. Which is but, named that way because uh, Abby Hoffman's book was called Steal This Steal Book. Steal This Book, yeah. yeah. Which, which was a, kind of an instructional anarchist tome about yeah. how to steal shit and get stuff for free and mm. protest police and what to do if you get arrested. Like, it was it was. Very, uh, very anarchist right cookbook. My dad had a copy, so I read <laughs> Steal This Book. <laughs> Nice. Uh, my dad, who's like, if you ever meet my dad, he's like, the, he's an engineer. He's this square nerdy guy. I just realized I've never met your dad. I think you've met my dad. You met him at my wedding, right? Oh, I guess I did. Yeah. You're right. I wasn't thinking about your wedding. Yeah. yeah he, he was there. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I have met your dad. I okay. think it was the only time. All right. It was yeah. weird. He's, he's We've a, known each other for over 10 years now. It's just kind of weird. He's a, a square 80-year-old engineer and, just, and, any, every, and everything that implies. Did you my mom? Uh, only at your wedding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't come around a lot. She doesn't, she doesn't like to travel. She yeah. doesn't like to travel. She doesn't live that far away. She just hates the freeway. Uh, don't blame her. No, not in um, this town. Cast is amazing. Anyway. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman. It's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the, the prosecuting attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Keaton has a small role. Uh, John Carroll Lynch is in it. Eddie Redmayne is in it doing, uh, I don't know what kind of weird American accent he's doing, but he's doing it. <laughs> Eddie Redmayne yeah. is better when he's weird. Yeah. And, and the defense attorney is played by Mark Rylance, who is superb. Well, he's Mark Rylance. When yeah. is he not? Uh, I, I, I'm familiar with the, the trial of the Chicago seven. There's been a lot of documentaries about this particular trial and about how, how funny some of the court transcripts were because the actual Chicago seven, six actually, but they sort of lumped in this extra guy who is just to uh, get a good title out of it. Well, just to, to put a, to make sure like racists got up in arms. So they found this, uh, this young black man and decided, Hey, he, we're going to arrest him for this unrelated crime, but say he was with these people who are inciting a riot. And a lot of it was about trying to prove that these people were inciting a riot and maybe they did, but it was all in the name of uh, pr- protest and free speech. And uh, anyway, l- l- look up the entire history. Yeah. Watch this film, but also look up the history because there's a lot going on in, in this yeah. this particular corner of American history about the Chicago 7. Uh, all of the dialogue and all of the discussion and all of the philosophizing is pure Sorkin through and through, and I like it. I okay. like that. I like watching him. I think it's exhilarating to watch these people banter in a really intelligent sort of way. Abby Hoffman didn't really talk like that. Who cares? I'm trying to think of like, I what's think like the Sasha most Baron inap- Cohen is a really good casting though. For what's Abby the most Hoffman? inappropriate like biopic you could do with mm. Aaron Sorkin's dialogue? Like, oh, can you gosh. imagine like like the mm. Vince McMahon story, but with Aaron Sorkin's dialogue? <laughs> like, how cool that yeah. would be! Like, I would love to see that movie. Oh gosh! Like who? Like Hulk Hogan? Walk with me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Andre the Giant's going to throw you off. Look, I call everybody brother because you're all my brothers. (laughs) Take your vitamins. Yeah, uh, I'd love, love to see the, the, the Aaron Sorkin WWF biopic. Can we like, please do that? WWF pitch the, that. Well, the problem is all those all those people from the WWF in the 1980s, you can't get actors to play those people. They're already these gigantic outsized I personalities. I want to see that movie. I want to see that movie <laughs> so do, bad. Who do you cast as Andre the Giant? There's only one know. Andre the Giant. Andre the Giant uh, will be playing himself via hologram. 
because this was made for Steven Spielberg, it has a Spielberg ending, and that almost undoes the whole oh, movie, where man. it goes for full bore cheesy Hollywood schmaltz. Oh. Which is Even completely... Spielberg can't get away with that half the time. No, and it, it, it feels so inauthentic oh. compared to the rest of the movie, which is trying to actually be a little bit thoughtful and talky about this time. Yeah. And actually be a little bit more instructional and, and actually deliver it with some ideas. Yeah. You know, some actual, like, character and self-effacing uh, dialogue. And, yeah, it just it ends with this big sort of people cheering in a courtroom and... Franklin Jello banging his gavel out of outrage, and all the the squares monocles are popping off. It's it's like uh, I, I don't want to say Patch Adams because that's too far. Will be clutch. Yeah, <laughs> but the cast is great. The dialogue is great. It's it's good slick Hollywood type entertainment that I feel like I've been missing movies like this. Okay. Like some classy people, some kind people, of biopic kind cl- of thing. Classy adult biopics. Yeah. But that are, are well missing. made. They're bad ones made every year. But no, exactly. Yeah. Like, Wait, so, so you like this one. Something with some, some studio money behind so it. So even though, even though the ending is a bit of a thud, it, this one's good. Yeah, it, it, it crashes into a wall at the end, but until then, it's pretty good. Okay, great. All right, uh, tell me about Black Box. Uh, Black, I wish I had seen the other three films in this series, because Black Box is one of four films that were released over the course of a week uh-huh. uh, that were part of Blumhouse's deal with Amazon mm-hmm. uh, that they, they put out, I guess it counts as a TV series, and they called it Welcome to the Blumhouse. Yeah, but basically what happened but it's four, was... it's four films that they just packaged together. Basically, Blumhouse makes a lot of low-budget movies, mm-hmm. and sometimes they... Well, you know, I would imagine most of them, all of these would have at least had a chance to go to theaters this year because Blumhouse can announce a movie and then have it out in six weeks. And Mm. then like, hey, we shot this. Here's the trailer. It'll come out in a month. And it'll be that... They're they're very, very good at picking their weekend. So like, we'll make like, this movie costs like $800,000 or like $2 million tops. And it made five opening weekends. So we're happy. Like that kind of thing. Uh, Uh, But like, this is just, they had a bunch of low budget independent horror movies. Uh, not independent, but the low-budget horror movies, and they ended up putting them out on Amazon. And there's Black Box, The Lie, Nocturne, and Evil Eye. Evil Eye. Yeah, those yeah. are the four. And I only saw Black Box. I wanted to watch all four, but I just didn't have the time. Yeah. Uh, busy watching all these other movies. Um, a lot. Black Box is about a man who is suffering from amnesia. Uh, he is played by... Let me look up the cast. Um, uh, Mamudu Afi. Is, okay. is the actor's name. Our uh, apologies for pronouncing that wrong. Yeah. Uh, Mamadou Athi, he was in, he was in Underwater. Uh, he, he was okay. the, the lead character in that film Uncorked, uh, which oh, I reviewed yeah, yeah. earlier this year, which I really liked. Um, but yeah, he plays a man who's suffered from amnesia. He suffered a trauma recently and he can remember nothing. Uh, and he has to look after a young, his young daughter, who's like maybe eight and figure out what his life is now. He can't remember his own identity he has little flashes of memory, but they can't really connect them to any of the things around him. Uh, he ends up, and it's starting to ruin his life. Like, he keeps on forgetting that he has a daughter, or he forgets that he has to pick her up from school at a certain time. His mind isn't all there. And he keeps seeing Cenobites everywhere. It's not a Hellraiser sequel. But that sounds like a Hellraiser sequel. Hold with me. <laughs> Stick with me. My story gets better. Uh, <laughs> He goes to a, a special sci-fi cerebral scientist played by Felicia Rashad. Yay. Felicia Rashad is awesome. Well, her performance is going to be really awesome. Yeah. 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 
She her her. She stood by. She stood by Bill Cosby for a while. I, I have yeah, mixed feelings I, about her, but she can be an amazing actor. She she she. In recent years, she's played some pretty badass characters. Sure. Uh, and here she she has this device, the sci-fi device that she can strap to uh, to the main character's face, called the black box. And it's kind of like a dream machine. It's like this hypnosis machine. And he can go inside his own mind and discover memories. And he wakes up in, like, an apartment he's never seen before. And to make it extra scary, when he looks at people's faces, they're all, like, blurred and distorted. And we can't see their faces. Oh, so Jacob's has, Ladder. Like, yeah, like a Jacob's Ladder sort of thing. And just to make it extra Jacob's Ladder-like, if he stays too long in any one location trying to look for stuff, a monster starts crawling toward him out of the walls somewhere. And it's a person, but it's all, like, knotted up and twisted, and its bones are crunching, and its head is on backwards, and it's really kind of, it's really scary looking, actually. And uh, every time he sees this thing, he starts to have more and more flashes of memory, and we begin to see that maybe he's having memories either implanted or memories of other people. He, do, he doesn't really know. And they do explain what the mystery is, but I don't want to say what it is because it's okay. actually Well, I would kind hope of fun, not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, uh, that this would is, seem to be kind of the point. This is pure classy Blumhouse. Okay. Uh, it actually has, you know, a really good tone, really good twist, good performances, good old low budget. This is the kind of horror movie I feel like I watched a lot of in the 80s and that studios stopped making after a while. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think... Blumhouse was really wise to take up the niche they did mm. because as studios began to pour more and more money into like single singular bigger projects, either prestige pictures or action blockbusters, mm -hmm. there wasn't really a place for horror because horror is traditionally very low budget. Yeah. You don't need a lot of money to make a good horror movie. In fact, in fact, for many years, horror was seen as kind of the black sheep of studios because mm. it was cheap to produce, yeah, yeah. because it was schlocky, but... It always made, it also, but it also kept them going. It may, they always make money because they're so cheap to produce. Exactly. And the, but they're not prestige. You I can't think like, brag a, about them the way they can with other films. I can only think of one gigantic, big-budget horror blockbuster in recent years, and those are the It movies. Yeah, those were big deal. Yeah. yeah like, those were expensive, and they were hmm. huge. And the first one's really good. Uh, I think they're okay. Um, they're... The second one's bad. Uh, the second one's got for, good bits for, in it. But first one's okay. Bad. I don't like the second one. Yeah, um, the second one doesn't work, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Which is unfortunately part of the problem with the book too. But uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the faithful adaptation. Yeah, <laughs> well, to an extent. But in, in the book, it's a spider, but everyone loves the clown. So now we have a clown spider. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, it was an improvement. I, I suppose. So. I, I'm willing to admit that that uh, bit was probably an improvement. The, the effects are fine. I, I actually didn't like the design of the clown. I thought it, lo I it looked too much like Hall like Universal Hall Halloween horror but yeah, it's, than an actual monster. But yeah, with a few exceptions, I think Doctor Sleep was pretty expensive, mm. and unfortunately, it didn't find an audience. I really love that mm. movie, but like for the most part, horror tends to be pretty cheap. Yeah. And Blumhouse, they mm. kind of pioneered this micro budget studio mm. in which the risk was incredibly low mm. and the rewards were incredibly high. All they had to do was. Start Strike Pater like once or twice a year. Just one movie mm. that does really well that pays for like a twenty other films that they mm. make. So who cares if Truth or Dare wasn't a huge success? <laughs> get Out was no. awesome. So, yeah, We're they fine. did. They did Get Out. That one Academy yeah. Award. Uh, yeah. They. Um, yeah, but they also did Truth or Dare, which is probably the worst film. Blumhouse is. Oh, been I don't know about that. They've they've they put out a couple of real stinkers, but mm. that's. 
down there. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> it's, down it's, there. It's really quite bad. But my point is this. It's, it, Blumhouse is actually an interesting position because they never spent a significant amount. I mean, well, and, in fact, not uh, nothing, but they never spent a lot of money. Jason Blum actually had a, a mandate yeah. that, that films had to be under a certain budget. Mm-hmm. It's, he's very Corman-esque in that way. But yeah. I think he's a little bit more enthused about the films he puts out. I think Corman was much more of a businessman. Sure. But, but, but Jason Blum is a very uh, savvy businessman, and he understands how to look for exciting stories that can be made in a budget mm-hmm. and then shop them around really effectively. Yeah. So Blumhouse doesn't have an exclusive contract with Amazon except for these four films. Right. Now they have a little section of Amazon. Right. Uh, and th- then they go to another studio and they kind of sell little pieces over here as exactly. well. So now Blumhouse is everywhere making money from everyone. And it's really... And they're actually this. putting out, for the most part, pretty quality of movies. And, and all things considered, their films, like there's a lot of studios that have a ton of films that they're not comfortable releasing now uh-huh. in streaming services because they cost so much they still want to get that theatrical money like mm. i don't know if like uh i think who's who's doing bond now is it universal that has bond now the mgm has always had well, well yeah but yeah, mgm yeah. doesn't have its own studio anymore they they flit about oh, like yeah. they were at sony i don't think they are anymore but yeah. regardless that Bond movie, No, uh, no Time to Die. They uh, uh, also have you ever noticed that No Time to Die and uh, Die Another Day basically the same sentiment. Mm. I think it's kind of funny. Anyway, uh, that will probably never go straight to streaming because it costs so damn much. Whereas all the movies that Blumhouse had in the can, fuck it, put them on Amazon. We're not. We're not. We're yeah. only going. We're already in the black. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Like it's they're safe. <laughs> they're doing okay. Like they're feeling no pain. So. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting mm. observation. But, you know, if you don't spend a shit ton of money on everything, you don't have to make a shit ton of money yeah, on everything and, in order to mm. succeed. And you also don't need to uh, put if, – if there's not a lot of a big, a, a big of a budget, you can afford to do a, kind of a little bit more of an intimate style story. It doesn't have to be a ground-shaking thing. It can be just a pretty good – maybe a little bit derivative, but, you know – Plenty effective little horror thriller mm. that you can sort of thumb through and get with your Amazon membership. It's not even like one of those premium things. Yeah, it just comes with it. But mm. that's nice. They should have just got that. So yeah, okay. so I, yeah, I recommend Black Box. Awesome. Okay, uh, tell me about Totally Under Control. Speaking of this year, yeah, um, Totally Under Control is the latest film from Alex Gibney. Uh, he's a documentarian who tends to make documentaries about. Uh, powerful institutions that are very corrupt. Uh, he recently he did, did the Scientology one. Yeah, Going Clear uh, was was an Alex Gibney film. Alex Gibney also did uh, the Enron documentary. Yeah. Alex Gibney did a, docu- uh, a documentary called Taxi to the Dark Side. Yeah. Uh, we Steal Secrets, which is about WikiLeaks. He did one about uh, corruption in the Catholic Church called Mea Maxima Culpa. Uh, he, he is a confrontational filmmaker who seeks to challenge powerful systems. The powerful system he's challenging in Totally Under Control is the Trump administration, and specifically its reaction to uh, COVID. Yeah. Which, if you've noticed, is still raging around the globe. Yeah. and, and It's not just timely. It's almost it's almost like watching a live feed it's this almost, movie. It's almost too soon. Like, mm. we don't... We're, like, I mentioned before, like, when you're making something that's, like... Contemporary, it's hard to like see the full context. Mm. Who the fuck knows when this no, thing is going to yeah. wrap and, up? If it's ever, if it's ever going to fully wrap up, who knows? Well, the, and the the big coda at the end is the day after we finished editing this. There's a little Chiron. 
President Trump tested positive for COVID. That was like last week. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really, really uh. up to the moment. And uh, it uh, traces the Trump administration's sort of staunch refusal to make good decisions. Mm. How they looked at you know, how badly prepared this administration was for a pandemic how they put all the wrong people in charge, how they were for the longest time and still to this day trying to spin it as like an image problem, like it was just PR yeah. without doing anything to it's actually, actually help it's people. It's actually not that bad. Like, yeah. yeah, you still have to do something. Mm. You don't just get to say it's actually not that bad. Kind of odd about this this administration. He always takes the course of action that involves the least amount of work for him. Mm-hmm. Um, curious. Uh, and and it it's almost painful to watch because it's like, oh, remember when he put Pence in charge of stuff? Yeah, I remember that. That was just recently. Mm-hmm. Remember when Jared Kushner said this stupid thing? Yeah, I remember that. That was remember, just recently. Remember when he said it was going to go away in a month? Mm-hmm. Just magically and, like a miracle? And they, they talk to a lot of epidemiologists and doctors and experts and people who are actually in the administration. They talk about Jared Kushner's task force, which was literally just like 20-something kids that were recruited off the street and going through the internet. That's yep. all they were doing. Like, they, they didn't know how to do any of this. And so they kind of did the, did the bare minimum of the, work. Do they talk about how the Obama administration actually had a task force in place? And one of the yes. first things, one yeah. of the very first things the Trump administration mm. did when they went into office was disband that. I mean, that was like the first month. Mm. And I remember them doing that at the time when I was just like, this feels like foreshadowing. <laughs> well, guess what? Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about watching Totally Under Control is. Think about everything you've been through since the lockdown began as an American and all of the anxieties, all of the waves you went through, all, uh, the, the thrill of ordering in, the uh, horror of ordering in, uh-huh. the, the fact that, that you can't go out, the fact that yeah. you were kind of outraged that the masks started to get politicized. All Driving around for yeah. multiple hours going to every single grocery store within like a 50 mile radius mm-hmm. trying to find any toilet paper. Yeah. I did that. Re- rem- just this is like – a little brief flashback of all of those anxieties. Every little tiny different flavor of anxiety that you had is you get another little sample, a little reminder of all of those things that you went through. Great. Alex Gibney is using this as a cudgel. It's clearly a political tool. It's like when uh, Michael Moore put out Fahrenheit 9-11 mm-hmm. shortly before the, uh, George W. Bush was running for a second term. He was using it as as an attack ad, essentially, to show what a failure the administration was. And that's what Alex Gibney is doing here. Problem is... If, uh, a lot of this is mm, preaching to the choir. That's the problem. That is a problem. Uh, yeah. And th- that is, that's actually a big problem with a lot of documentaries of this ilk. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to have the most passionate defenders and people who kind of already agree with you. Yeah. I think Alex Gibney is actually very fair. He doesn't make any kind of um, assumptions about... Uh, the administration's motives for what they were doing. He doesn't say because they were interested in PR or because mm. they just weren't prepared or because they didn't like to work. None of that is sad. He just says what they literally did. What, what they did and the reaction that a lot of people had is like this was kind of a baffling decision. This was a bad decision. And I think in taking that approach, he might be trying to grab people who uh, 
are, are still supporting supportive of the administration mm-hmm. and realizing, wait, they really bungled a lot. Like, like remove the PR, remove mm. the the all of the glitz and glamour yeah, and the, the, the grandstanding cult of and personality, the and just look at the actual nuts and the actual that de- the, the, the decisions that were made and the decisions yeah. that were made were bad decision after bad decision. For- Whatever they were motivated by, they were bad. I forget who it was, but someone mm. just said something where like every presidential election could boil mm. down to one thing. The country better off than it was before the last presidential election? Mm. No. Mm. In this case, hell no. <laughs> Vote for the other person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, this this is cl- clearly a in a way it's a plea to vote for Joe Biden in a yeah. couple of weeks uh, if if you haven't voted already because yeah. a lot of people are voting early. Yeah, vote um, early if you can. Mm. Seriously, like I mean, and legally, obviously, yeah. but like, yeah, it's really important. We voted this weekend; it was important. I, I, I voted weeks ago. <laughs> I was yeah, we very, our our ballots came in a little later uh, than yours. Okay, but yeah, yeah, we yeah. I was very 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 proud of myself that I got to got to vote and put the sticker on and everything. Yeah. Um. But at the same time, I think this is a really good uh, examination as to how badly things can be handled on a on like sort of a managerial level. Uh, that it takes a very c- a certain kind of manager to deal with a crisis, and none of the people in charge of this crisis are good managers. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is a little bit more of a universal theme than "Wow, the Trump Trump sucks." You know, it's yeah. not just a Trump sucks kind well, of. Well, I remember people talking about that when Trump was elected. Mm-hmm. Like, what they, everyone kept going after, like, what a bad person he is. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, that a lot of people didn't care because he was running on "I'm a billionaire," ergo, I'm a good business person. Mm-hmm. And um, well, yeah, I don't and, know and if I want someone I, who found a way to bankrupt a casino to be in charge of an epidemic. Mm. <laughs> How do you bankrupt a casino? Jesus Christ. Anyway, <laughs> um, so moving on, moving um, on. One more new release. Mm. Uh, this is the uh, Spike Lee directed performance of David Burns. American Utopia. Mm. This one pisses me off that I didn't see this because I really do love well Spike Lee and David Byrne, and David Byrne is mm. indeed one of my favorite musicians. Ever. And the Talking Heads are my favorite band. Ever. So, I don't know how the hell I didn't make time for this. I'm actually mad at myself. I actually thought, I think I thought it came out next week. There you (laughs) go. Whoops. Yeah, this is a a, a live taping of, this was a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's a David Byrne concert. It's not the whole talk. It's not Talking Heads. It's mm. David Byrne and a, a new band. Yeah, Doc, Talking Heads mm. disbanded, I think, in the early nineties. Yeah. But but David, I think David Byrne wrote most of the music, so the songs mm-hmm. are his. Yeah, he has rights to perform them, and uh, so it's yeah. He comes out in a suit. He comes out with his band. They all perform live on stage with portable instruments, so they're constantly moving around the stage in this yeah. big square space, uh, surrounded by beaded curtains, and uh, and Spike Lee is there to in his energetic fashion, zoom in and just sort of be there on stage with the performers performers while David Byrne sings the hits. Are they all hits? Uh, well, he sings some of the hits. He, so you're, you're going to have, this must be the place. Yeah. You're going to have burning down the house and, and you're going to have once in a lifetime. Okay. Those are expected, but you know, some other new songs as well. Yeah. Uh, so we actually got a good cross section of David Byrne's uh, discography. Uh, and there's some really great musicianship on display. There's some really great dancing on display. And it does end up having a very political message. He talks about Black Lives Matter. Mm. And and ultimately, he's trying to sell something very optimistic. And that's something that uh, a lot of people don't notice about uh, Spike Lee movies. His movies uh, are usually uh, said to be very angry. And that's true. Uh, and there's a lot of outrage about them. And you watch a lot of his movies. And yes, there is a lot of rage in his films. But ultimately... 
they tend to come out on an optimistic note that things can only improve from here. Mm. Here's the things we can do to make things better. Yeah. You watch something like Chirac, that's about gang violence in Chicago, and it's about death and suffering. And it is, but it's also this weird riff on Lissa Strada and how a sex strike might end gang violence. <laughs> but it's also very serious about gang violence. Yeah. So, like, he's not making light of anything. Uh, so I, I feel like when he's going to David Byrne, you, you wouldn't think Spike Lee and David Byrne would be a good match, but they both seem to have, they're, I think they're about the same age. Yeah, I give And they, uh, they have a similar view. They're looking out at this world that's full of horror and injustice and thinking that art, dancing, music, and optimism can be a direct fighting force against all of that. So David Byrne is out there. He's not like doing pro protest art he's simply saying and things will get better yeah. he's actually just a good-natured dude yeah david byrne is a really fascinating artist mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan his music's really wonderful and catchy but what i admire most about david byrne is he doesn't write music about what other people write music about in fact mm -hmm. you look at his entire like discography or whatever you want to call it. He's only written a, a handful of love songs. Mm. Like it's not really what he writes about. He'll write songs about like, Oh, our marriage is falling apart. So we started a TV station or, uh, uh, like the, how like sad it will be when like humanity like falls apart and all of these beautiful like shopping malls, get covered in, like, some crappy plants. Mm. Like, he's just, like, <laughs> he's got different perspectives on things. And he doesn't, I don't think he really believes that. But he's interested in looking at things from odd angles. Mm. And a, a lot I of... Think that, I think that really, I think it mm. works as a show. Because a lot of these concepts and a lot of these orchestrations um, are a little, are, they're complicated enough that they benefit from highlighting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, he's clearly a child of. Uh, he he came to fame in like the early eighties, uh, late seventies was 70s. the first okay. album. Uh, Seventy seven, I think, was the first time. Okay, album. yeah, and uh, a and lot then, of it is very uh, critical of uh, a certain kind of corporate culture that was yep. really big at the time. Yeah, and I think that's something that runs through. And American Utopia was David Byrne's most recent record, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, songs from that record. And a lot of that flavor still remains. I think that's just sort of where he's most comfortable. But he's been very mild, I think. Mm. And he, like, he's like one of his big... He's, like, he's, uh, he's not like a punk rocker or has no. that kind of sarcastic new wave stuff. Like Once in a Lifetime is a little sarcastic. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's also um, like a little bit off-putting and dizzying. It's about mm. sort of the confusion of the time yeah. more than it is about sort of the harm of well, like, the time. If you think about like a lot of uh, like you know artists, celebrities, famous people, rich people... Like, they have a cause, mm. you know? Like, I'm going to fight, you know, cancer, save which, of course, is a great cause. You know, save the Texas Prairie Chicken. Save yeah. the Texas Prairie Chicken, whatever it is. Mm. Uh, David Burns cause celebre, or whatever it is you want to call it. Um, he's he, he, he wants to promote bicycling. <laughs> That's what he does. He promotes bicycling. Mm. He thinks if we all bicycled more, mm. like, we'd all be healthier and the air would be cleaner. And, yes. <laughs> That's... True. <laughs> he did an art installation that was just different kinds of bike racks. That was it. <laughs> he invented different kinds of bike racks. That was the whole deal. He's a bit of a peculiar dude. <laughs> yeah. He's, I think he holds the world record for creating the largest musical instrument in the world. He created one out of a building. Like, <laughs> like he's an interesting guy. He wrote a really great mu oh, book that's... about, like, the art of making music from a different oh philosophical perspective. He's really this cool. Is... 
if you're not familiar with him, of a PDQ Bach story. <laughs> PDQ Bach, who invented the loudest instrument of all time. It was called the pandemonium. <laughs> uh, David Byrne also won an Academy Award. Oh, oh um, for... Uh, b- b- um, you can do it. Best original score. 1987, I think. Oh, was it? Uh, True Stories. Uh, no. no, no. Last Emperor. Oh, that's right. He did do this. He did the, the last score Emperor. for the last Emperor. I just lost a Schmodon question. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, seriously, I recommend if you haven't heard the music, I recommend pretty much every Talking Heads album. Hmm. Stop making sense is I think the greatest concert album, uh, mu- uh, movie of all time. Hmm. Uh, if you want to look into but his, here's, here's another David Byrd concert film for you. Yeah, so. and if you want to look into his other uh, uh, discography, I would recommend uh, Love This Giant, which he did with Saint Vincent. Uh, Everything That Happens Will Happen Today. He did it with Brian Eno. And I think Look Into the Eyeball is probably my other favorite of his solo stuff. Um, Just really, just I I, I love David Burns' work. Have you listened to the record, American Utopia? You know, actually, I haven't. Which is weird. It's a weird oversight for me. I don't know how Mm. I didn't. I think I thought (laughs) it was only a stage play. I don't think it occurred to me that it was actually an album. Yeah, it's an album. It's it's totally what I'm just going to do now. Like when this podcast is over. I'm like, shit, how did I miss that? It's crazy. Order the CD. Oh, wait, kids don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> kids. All right, moving on. Uh, uh, so that's that's the new releases. That's all the new releases. Holy shit. I saw a lot of movies you in these really last two You really did. Thank you so much. Uh, so we're going to do on the critically acclaimed scale of uh, C- minus to C+, plus, where C is an average. At Most movies are average because mm-hmm. that's how average works. Uh, C- plus is above average. Which is either we recommend it or potentially the greatest movie ever or anything in between. Mm. And then C- minus is below average. We don't recommend it. Potentially the worst movie ever or anything in between. Mm. Uh, we'll start with the one I reviewed. Remember that? Hubie Halloween. That was a while ago. Hubie Halloween. Am I going to give this a C+. Plus? Oh, no. Do I dare... You know what? It's it's. It, you know your, what? I'm not. They're I'm not your letters. They're your you know letters. What? I'm, not gonna 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 I'm not going to give it. I'm not going to give it. It's a very high C. Okay. This is a very, very, very good, but not amazing like mm. Halloween comedy. Uh, it's like if it, it's the it'd be a good double feature with like Ernest Scared Stupid. <laughs> that, right, it's that right. level of of silliness, and it it, it mostly works. Uh, so I like it fine. It's not a new Halloween classic, but I, I like it fine. Uh, moving on, uh, Whitney, tell uh, give give a rating for Possessor. Possessor C plus. Mm. Good, good, di- very disturbing, uh, arty, unique card. Yellow Rose. Yellow Rose. Um, a, a high C. Okay. Uh, it, it's not quite transcendent, but it is quite good. Mm. Okay, The mm. Wall of Mexico. That's a C minus. Uh. Pretentious claptrap. The 40-Year-Old Version. Uh, I'll repeat myself. It's one of my favorite films this year. I really, really love The 40-Year-Old Version. That's a C+. Definitely seeing it. Uh, Charm City Kings. Uh, I see. Uh, Well-meaning to cliché. Okay. Uh, The War with Grandpa. That's a C-. Big Uh, piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. I'll just say it. Okay. Uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, High C. Uh, Yeah. Really good, riveting, mainstream Hollywood movie with a cheesy ending. Okay. Black Box. Also a C. Effective. Okay. Totally under control. Uh, maybe just a C plus for its immediacy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's relevant. It's, it's, a, it's now. It's, it's hip. It's, it's now. It's wow. It's, 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 it's so hip. It can't see over its own waist. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's quite good. Okay. And American Utopia. American Utopia. Also a C plus. Just, right. um, I mean, 
Who doesn't love a good concert movie? Even if you don't like the music, a good concert movie can kind of get you into it. Yeah. All right. But the episode isn't over. Oh, no. We've got the critically acclaimed streaming club. With two got, movies, because we got two weeks to, to catch up on. we got two weeks to catch up on. So every week at the critically acclaimed streaming club, or in this case, two weeks, uh, we have a poll. And our patrons get to decide which movie on a particular streaming service, an older movie, that either Whitney and or myself have never seen before, we're going to review. And this month, we're mostly focusing on the horror genre, because it's fun. And uh, we decided to focus on, initially, uh, horror films we had never seen on the Shudder streaming service. Which, That's right. Which is a horror exclusive streaming service. Uh, and lot, then we decided fun stuff over there. And then we decided to look at for the month of October, Criterion added a bunch of seventies horror movies. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do one of those polls as well. And next week there is a poll. It's going up late because we weren't sure if we were putting this episode out this week or not. Uh, we're going to have a poll uh, for our films on Peacock that we're going to review next week. So mm-hmm. if you're a patron, check on the check on the Patreon page. That poll will be up probably by the time you're listening to this. Um. But, uh, yeah, so let's get started. We'll do it in chronological order. We were going to do Shudder first. And the winner of the Shudder poll is a really wonderful proto-slasher camp masterpiece, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm not sure what Whitney thinks, because I'd mm-hmm. seen this one before. Theater of Blood, starring Vincent Price as a hammy Shakespearean actor who decides to exact revenge on the theater critics who destroyed his career and humiliated him by killing them in ways inspired by Shakespearean plays. Um, first of all, wow, what a premise. What a great premise. The actor is played by Vincent Price. Yes. Vincent Price is having a ball in this movie. So much fun. He is having so much fun he overacting. Be, he gets to be a horror villain and do like eight Shakespeare plays. Mm. And the character uh, is such a, an acting snob that he refuses to do anything other than Shakespeare. He is a Shakespearean actor. And he's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> he's and, got a lot of stage presence, but he's got that mm. sort of like He's over-speaking everything. Everything's a yeah. little too dramatic. He would be an amazing, like, late-night horror movie host, but as a Shakespearean actor, he mm. enunciates well, and you can tell what he means, but he's actually not emoting very well. So even though the critics, who are, in, like most critics in movies, are portrayed as total assholes, <laughs> and like, they are assholes. The, the rich snots who look down their nose at everybody. Yeah, they uh, just uh, hate uh, everyone and everything. What I appreciate about uh, the... The critics, though, is they stand by their word. Mm-hmm. They don't back down. It's like, how how dare you give me a bad review? And they look him right in the eye and say, well, you sucked. Yeah. like, And, and honestly, they're not wrong. He's, <laughs> he's not a great actor. They were apparently kind of a dick to him because it all boiled down to, he said there, he could... There's a flashback where he got to learn like yeah. his, his super villain origin story, which involves the same viper rum that you saw in the movie street trash <laughs> essentially but we'll get to that but like he he's he, he initially he was just an actor who got bad reviews and critics and he even says i can handle criticism mm-hmm. what pissed me off was you implied that i was going to win an award from your critics association yeah. you gave a speech which clearly indicated my career and then you gave it to a young upstart mumblecore actor <laughs> and i was humiliated mm-hmm. and i was embarrassed and he went to them like after after the awards event they were all drinking dry sherry and like smelling their own farts and like he shows up and gives them a big speech about how i'm busting my ass trying to perform wonderful works of art for you people and you 
you humiliated me and uh, fuck you i'm taking this award yeah he grabs the statue and they, he walks out onto the balcony and it's almost it's it's like something out of the naked gun where all of the critics are or monty python or they're sitting inside drinking their shares like well that was a bit dramatic wasn't it and we see but we don't really hear vincent price outside going oh wow this is terrible <laughs> It's bloody hilarious, and uh, he falls off the balcony and lands in the Thames. Yeah, and he gets washed away, and he wakes up in, like, this weird post-apocalyptic wasteland filled with, like, like, ravenous, filled with ravenous homeless people. Like, not even just, like, character actor homeless people, but, like, Like weird... Cartoon villain, insane villain homeless people. Yeah, and they give him weird purple drinks that drive him insane. Yeah, they give him some booze, and that's what makes him crazy. Yeah, and so he emerges, after, like, spending two years building up a repertoire and training these... These this weird coven <laughs> to be evil? his to be his theater in the round or his chorus. Well, what he what he is at that point now is a Batman villain. Yeah, the bat this week on Batman the Bard, <laughs> yeah, the Mad Thespian. Um, but yeah, so his whole oh, thing the, is oh, the Mad Thespian was a Sam and Max villain actually. Oh, I think you're right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so now his whole thing is he is killing every single one of the critics in a manner akin mm. to. Shakespeare, and I actually really love the way this movie opens. It opens with a bunch of like silent movie performances of William Shakespeare, mm. and you realize that if you strip away the eloquence of the dialogue, Shakespeare is actually pretty lurid and violent, and it's easy to forget sometimes because he's very elevated in the public consciousness, mm. but... Shakespeare was a populist filmmaker or populist storyteller. He was a populist storyteller who told stories for the masses that were full of blood and guts. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, here is the story of a bunch of effete elitists who think that art should be for the most intelligent people and that they should look their nose down on everybody. And here's a guy who's making Shakespeare for like homeless people. Who is basically killing them in order to defend not just his own integrity, he's quite mad, mm. but indeed the art form. And he even says, people liked my plays. I, they were successful. I did a whole like summer of Shakespeare and people went and liked it. What is the matter with you? And they said, well, you weren't very good. And, the, <laughs> and, they're, they're, oh, and, no. and, and to be fair, near as we can tell, he wasn't. But... Well, and, and that, that's the, the greatness of Vincent Price, is that yeah. he's able to camp it up, read things with a lot of confidence, but also communicate to you that it, that he's very bad at it. Yeah. It takes a very good actor to play a bad actor. I think so. That's mm. very, very true. And no, Janet, you've got the whole town in a panic. The, the murders mm. are delightful. <laughs> they are sick. Some of them are twisted. Like, we, we start where a bunch of hobos stab one of the critics in a sewer, and it's... Uh, uh, it's from Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. The Ides yeah. of March, and it, they just all stab him to death. Yeah. And at the end, when Vincent Price reveals that he was the police officer on the scene who, like, sent the guy into the house, mm. and it's like, and you! <laughs> it's like a two-brute. Uh. Um, and uh, then we, we have, uh, they do uh, Troilus and Cressida, where mm-hmm. a guy gets, like, dragged by a horse. Yeah. Uh, which well, is really... well, it's from the Iliad, but yeah. Well, but it's from the thing. Uh, and uh, let's see what we got. We got uh, Cymbeline, where he actually decapitates 
he 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 knocks out a woman, and the guy the the husband is the one who's the critic. Mm. And while she is unconscious, he decapitates him in his bed. Like, like lays down a tarp to catch all the blood. Oh. You actually get to see it all all its gory it's detail. Really yeah. gruesome. Um, there's one really fucked up one where it's the, um... Oh, the Titus Andronicus one? The Titus Andronicus one, <laughs> one is really, is too dark even for me. Oh, right? this is like, my favorite one. It, I, I will say this. It's, mm. There's a trigger thing with some dogs, and oh, yeah, it's all yeah. off camera, but it is gross. Yeah, if, if you don't like watching animals get, get abused, then maybe yeah. don't watch well, that Well, again, scene. you don't see anything, yeah. and the dogs obviously weren't harmed, but, like, the implication is that they were, and that's, mm. that's fucked up. But, again, it's a gruesome, lurid thing, and the guy is being tortured because he's a bad person. Um, I'm trying to think of... The, oh, what was the one I like? There's one in the middle I like the most. There's a guy who gets drowned in wine. That's a good yeah. one. Oh, the best... Well, the best one actually isn't a murder. It's an attempted murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best one is uh, when he uh, has a sword fight with one of the critics. Oh, and the, what the dude is... The dude is just... He fences for fun. He's at the gym. Vincent Price is at the gym. And he realizes that the guy he's dueling doesn't have that, like, uh, button on the end of the of the epee. So mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, you won't hurt anybody. So it's Vincent Price dueling this guy. And they jump around all over the, the, the gymnasium. And they duel on trampolines as they're jumping up and down. Mm-hmm. It is glorious it's, to watch. It's pretty silly at that point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you realize um, at that point, like, okay, I'm not supposed to be taking this totally seriously, yeah, yeah. and that's okay. It's it's kind of a horror comedy in a way. Yeah, it, it's it really embraces uh, just its mean spirited schlock, uh-huh. and uh, I love that. I love I, I love movies that are willing to just sort of swing for the fences and theater of blood <laughs> about this hammy Shakespearean actor killing people in Shakespeare style. Just invites itself to that. It, mm. it knows exactly how to handle this kind of premise. Vincent Price is an actor who I think it's interesting because he started off doing everything. You know, mm. he was uh, he was in Laura, which is one of the best mystery movies of all time. Um, he was in a ton of really really great movies in a variety of genres. I'm particularly fond of a movie he did with Robert Mitchum called His Kind of Woman, uh, mm. in which uh, Robert Mitchum. Uh, goes to he's invited to a mysterious hotel in the middle of nowhere, and it's uh, Vincent Price is a hammy actor who's <laughs> who's staying there as well. But they end up becoming friends, and Robert Mitchum runs afoul of an evil uh, uh, like mafioso who wants to steal his identity. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Price leaps to the rescue in this wonderful comedic bit. But he ended up becoming mostly associated with the horror genre in yeah. the last, I think, like 30 years of his life. I forget what the f- his first horror movie was. The story was that he hated working on his first horror movie so much mm-hmm. that he said he'd never do another horror movie again. And then proceeded to make a hundred of them. I, it must have been pretty early because he, I think early on he was the voice of the Invisible Man in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. In, in a cameo. In like a cameo. But, like, there. I don't know what his, I don't know what his first one was. Mm-hmm. But um, he ended up becoming synonymous with Roger Corman. They made a lot of adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe together. Yeah. And these are ostensibly classy movies. Some of them are also just salacious and crazy. Um, some of them are a little stodgy. I'm not a fan of The Fall of the House of Usher. Some I think of, that one's fine. I, I just find it kind of slow. But right. some of them are amazing. And The Pit and the Pendulum is fantastic. I haven't seen uh, that one. The Tomb of Lygea is fantastic. Mask of um, Red Death is great. Mask of Red Death is probably their masterpiece together. Mm. That's 
a brilliant motion picture. They did a movie called The Haunted Palace, which they said was an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe, but was actually an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft, and they just pretended Poe wrote it, which I <laughs> didn't know you could do that, but the movie's really, really good. And he would go on to make a variety of largely schlocky movies, but occasionally classic films. Mm. The Abominable Dr. Fibes is an excellent motion picture. Um, some people consider that like that or uh, that the Wax Museum. Or uh, was it the Howard the Wax Museum? House of Wax. House of Wax. Yeah. The original House of Wax movie was Mystery of the Wax Museum, which was directed by Michael Curtiz, who would go on to do Casablanca. I still think that's the best version. But the Vincent Price version, if you adjust for inflation, it's like somewhere around the 50th highest grossing movie in history today. <laughs> it was a monster success. So he was huge. But uh, I also recommend The Witchfinder General, which is easily his meanest movie. But it's really, really great. Um, any other Vincent Price horror movies you want to recommend before we move on? Because I feel, oh, like, his, he, I feel like his filmography <laughs> gets a little overlooked. I, I think you hit all the big, you already okay. hit all the biggies. But yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm a big fan. He's a wonderful actor. Uh, he, he did cookbooks. He's really just the, really just the bee's knees. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. Um, all right. So, uh, Theater of Blood, available on Shutter. Uh, see this movie. It's wonderful. It's a great adjunct to our Shakespeare episode. In fact, didn't you, you put it on your list of the best Shakespeare movies? It was on, it was an honorable mention. I oh, felt okay. it deserved a mention because it's a movie that thoroughly understands just how weird and crazy and violent Shakespeare was. Yeah. And it, and it makes references to plays that you don't see staged a lot, like Trailers and Crescent. Yeah, like Henry the Sixth yeah. or whatever. Like, yeah, it's, it's not just doing the hits. Like, mm-hmm. it's actually, did the research and made it really fun. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Theater of Blood. I'm glad Whitney liked it too. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, really dug it. It's I just, knew you would. Just wonderfully sick movie. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, next up on the, the second week, which we missed, but we're catching up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were looking at 70s movies on Criterion. And the one that, it was interesting because like very few of the movies that were released in this set are very well known. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we actually had a tie. We had a time we had to have a runoff because it was between a movie which I'm still going to see this month because I didn't know it existed until very recently and I'm fascinated. <laughs> it's called The Nightcomers and it stars Marlon Brando and it is a prequel to The Turn of the Screw. Weird idea. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. about because if, if you're familiar with it or if you've seen the movie The Innocence or maybe you've seen the new Netflix series The Haunting of Bly Manor, which is an updated version of it. Oh, or, is, is that what that is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. now I'm interested. Okay. I, I hear it's quite good. I haven't watched right. it yet. Um, or, or they did a, another modern update earlier this year called The Turning, which I actually heard wasn't very good, but I didn't see that one. Um, it's a story. The, the actual story is about a governess who... Uh, moves into a you know, moves into a big mansion, and it turns out the kids are not all right. There's something really weird going on, and when she finally finds out what happened to the kids and why there may or may not be ghosts running around the place, you realize that there's a really really terrible thing that happened. The Nightcomers is about that thing. Okay. Before anything ghostly happened, and it stars Marlon Brando, and it was from the director of Death Wish. What? <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. I have to see that movie now. But that was that came very, very close to winning. So I thought it deserved an honorable mention. The winner is a movie with a really great horror movie title. It's a title I've heard many, many times. Mm-hmm. And I finally got to see it, thanks to all of you wonderful patrons. It's Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And Let's Scare Jessica to Death was uh, directed by John Hancock. Not that John Hancock. <laughs> who um, 
who would go on to do things like, oh, other kind of obscure cult movies like Weeds and Wolfen. Um, Wolfen's not that obscure. I guess not. Uh, he also did a, a family movie in the late 80s called Prancer. Prancer's uh, really good. Yeah, uh, but he, he started his career, John yeah. D. Hancock, with Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And the title might have you believe that there's a conspiracy going on from the start. And the film doesn't necessarily bear that out. Uh, mm. This is... This is sort of like a grindhouse version with Terrence Malick notes hidden throughout in that there's a lot of slow slow scenes and close-ups of people who are clearly panicking on the inside and sweating a lot. And we hear a lot of their internal monologue whispered yeah. about how they think someone in the room is lying to them. But it never manifests in any kind of way. So all we get is this haze of fear and resentment. Now, the title character... Is uh, she's really interested in graveyard rubbings? Mm -hmm. uh, she is it her husband or just her boyfriend? Oh, it's her husband. It's her uh, husband. She, she's played by Zora Lampert, who had a pretty uh, interesting long career. Um, horror fans might know her best as uh, uh, George C. Scott's wife from The Exorcist Three. Oh, yeah. Was yeah, at yeah. the center of one of mm -hmm. the like scariest scenes of the nineties. Yeah, uh, really, really cool. She's a good actress. Good at uh, she, her husband, and a mutual friend of theirs drive in their hippie hearse, yeah, up to a cabin that they've acquired recently and uh, are gonna evidently it's still furnished. Whoever lived there previously didn't take any of the stuff out, and there's also a person there, yeah, there's a squatter, mm. uh, and, and, and uh, they're, they're so laid back and kind of cool with it. They say, Why don't you just stay for another night? We'll drive you into town, we'll, we'll make you a dinner. Mm. We know you're squatting, and she's. A little bit on edge, but she says she the squatter agrees. Yeah, and of course, uh, you know the friend that they bring along with them, who is not romantically attached, is super into her. But maybe she's more into Jessica's husband, or maybe she's more into Jessica. And the thing is that there's some Carmilla stuff going on. Oh yeah, yeah. and uh, the thing is that Jessica, we learned very quickly, had just spent six months in a mental institution, mm. and they think she's fine now. She's doing okay, but very quickly, when she gets back to this house, she starts hearing voices again, hmm. and she's not sure if it's in her head, or if maybe the place is haunted, yeah. or both, which is yeah. frightening. And uh, one of uh, her recurring hallucinations is uh, there's something in the lake. They go swimming in a nearby lake a lot, and she sees somebody's hair and like a white dress underneath the water, and we're not really sure what she's seeing Creepy what's image. going on. Yeah. Creepy image. Some good creepy stuff. Yeah, but, uh, uh, but for the majority of the movie... Mm -hmm. It's just we're at this house. Uh, this 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 lady who's here is kind of weird, and uh, my relationship with my husband is getting increasingly fraught. In part because, uh, well, I have a history of mental illness, and he doesn't fully understand that. Although he is certainly sympathetic and cares, uh, but he's being pushed to the edge of his comfort zone and his ability to take care of me while still taking care of his own needs. Mm. Uh, and he might be in the market for a mistress right now, which of course adds jealousy to the mix, which is mm. a bad idea. Um, and also as uh, they start going through the house and their plan is to sell some of the furnishings in the house in order to sort of make ends meet while they get back on their feet mm. and spend all their money on this house. Um, also the house might be really fucking haunted. And indeed one of the first things they find is it's an, a, old, it's an old portrait. It's an old portrait. And it's one of those, I forget what they call, but there's this interesting, like, kind of bubble portrait where, like, the, the glass over the photograph is uh, is curved in such a way that it kind of gives a little depth to the image. We used to have one of these in my house of, like, my yeah, great-grandparents. 
Um, it's, it's, it serves as a magnifying glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there's a name for it. I forget what it is. Um, uh, but the frame was obviously looks really expensive. So they decide we're going to sell this at an antique store in town. And what nobody notices until two thirds of the way through the movie, but the movie shows you very clearly because there are tons of close ups, mm. is one of the one of the people in this like 100 year old photo, or I guess like 80 year old photo at the time, uh, is the squatter. Yeah. So <laughs> we're telegraphing things mm. a smidge. Uh, but also, all of the people in town are total dicks to everybody. They, they, God golly, they hate those hippies. Yeah. And at first you think, oh, they hate hippies. Hmm. Okay. It was 60s and 70s. A lot of people hated hippies. A lot of people were jerks. Uh, but then you start wondering, maybe there's something more going on here. Hmm. And we keep waiting because this is just one of those movies where... It is a slow, slow burn. Yeah. It takes a long time to, I, to work up any head of steam. Thank goodness. I'm not going to say it peaks well, but thank goodness at least it does peak. Mm. Like, cause it's always frustrating when they doesn't seem to really go anywhere. But basically this whole time it's un- until like they finally confirm whether or not anything. So when well, we're going to talk about the ending actually, because there's not that much to say about the film. Um, sadly, I was expecting maybe a little bit more depth from criterion, but you know, they, they can't all be, the richest film ever. Um, but um, for about two thirds of the movie, before they confirm whether or not anything supernatural is going on, what we have here is a story about mental health, a story about a woman who mm-hmm. is worried about losing her mental health. A woman who feels increasingly isolated uh, by her support group, her support, support network. Sorry. Um, and it's all this very internal horror story. Um, set within someone's mm. mind, in the mind of an unreliable narrator. We can't tell if the horrifying things she sees are real or not. Mm. Um, mm. And there's a certain... I gotta tell you something. The idea of, listen, we're all trapped indoors with each other for a really extended period of time, and we're all kind of losing it and going stir-crazy, and it feels like everyone outside isn't really safe to be close to right now. And I'm watching this, and I'm just like, I'm kind of feeling this movie more than I normally would <laughs> this year. Like, yeah. this movie is not amazing, but I'm getting a little bit more on edge with mm. it now. Because I'm just kind of on, I'm just kind of feeling it. Yeah. But then once you actually find out, and of course it's all building to maybe not a twist, but a reveal. Because mm. you do have to eventually decide what was going on. Probably. They, they made the choice anyway. Once you find out what's going on, it's, um, I'm just going to tell you. Give you a moment to pause it or whatever you want to see the movie result. Uh, vampires. <laughs> of course, it's vampires. It's just, just fucking vampires. Yeah, like well, it's not well, like there's... it's not like it's not like an, ear, an eerie curse or or some ancient like malevolent thing. It's like no, it's just it's just vampires. They're well, all vampires. But again, it, it the, the vampires. By the time we get to the, the the image of the vampires and how they're sort of towering over Jessica and how mm. she kind of has this big freak out at the end, I was reminded a lot of the haunting. Sure. Uh, where. Uh, the main character in that one just sort of has this big freak out and starts seeing all of these things. And it's never clear whether or not those are hallucinations and it could still very well be a hallucination by the end. I don't think it's ever really fully. Uh, true. True. You could, you, one could like argue, actually, actually define. Here's, here's the thing though. Here's the thing though. One could make that argument. Mm. However, there are moments throughout the film in which the things that if Jessica saw them, they could only be explained as either the supernatural is real mm. or she's she cannot trust her own senses. There are moments in which we see other characters experience those things. That's true. In which we see like there's someone who isn't Jessica being attacked when she's not around 
or someone in the lake encountering that supernatural body. Yeah. Like, and as a result, we know at the end that at least you, you could, if you really, really wanted to do a few mental gymnastics and say, maybe it's all in her head. Mm. And this is all a paranoid fantasy. Um, in which case the movie is probably a little bit more interesting because in actuality, it's kind of frustratingly straightforward. Mm. I do like the way that they pretty sensitively treat her as someone who is suffering from mental illness and trying to maintain her dignity and trying to, uh, uh, you know, fight for her own independence and her own rights as an individual while also understanding that while something is scary is going on around her, this makes her especially vulnerable as she cannot necessarily trust what is actually dangerous and what is not. Mm. And that's extra scary. I think that's inherently frightening and that's a mm. solid premise provided as treated sensitively. And this is actually pretty, pretty sensitively. And mm. I respect that. Um, but it's just fucking vampires. <laughs> it's just, well, that's it's, it. It's just fucking yeah. It's like what? I, I'm thinking of something. I, I compared it to the haunting. The haunting was made by uh, I must call him Ray Wise, um, Robert Wise. Robert Wise, yeah. Uh, who lent lent a lot of sort of style and class uh, oh, and, such a well shot and, and sophistication to this uh, ghost story. And, yeah. and it, it was you know, I, I think both of these movies have been compared to Turn of the Screw and. Yeah. Um, and and that that feels like really kind of slick. It feels, I think, like it has a greater budget than perhaps it did. Mm-hmm. It just has really sharp production values. Amazing production design. If, in the if you are a little bit more fond of grimier grindhouse aesthetics, this is the grindhouse version of the haunting. Yeah, it's it's smaller. Yeah. It's cheaper. It, it feels it has more a little like bit real... more. There's a little bit more sex in it. It has a little bit more. Yeah, more of a mm. grit on it. It, ha- it mm. and it has a little bit more of a. I think a raw quality that right. I think is typically missing from these sorts of ghost or vampire stories. Because well, at it, least it, of the era. Uh, yeah. Of the era. And it, yeah. it, it, um, and because of that, I think that's what sets it apart. I, I think that's I what makes it unique. I, I remember when, when everyone always talks about when Poltergeist came out, it's like, oh, they brought the haunted house yeah. into suburbia. And this isn't suburbia, but it is also not a big spooky mansion. This is yeah. definitely just some house... With in, shag carpeting. Yeah, in New England. I, mm. I don't know if I think it's Maine or something like that. It's and Connecticut. It's Connecticut? Yeah. Okay. Why is Connecticut in so many horror movies? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and that's and that works. I like that it feels like an independent character piece mm. that has some horror elements. And ultimately, I just feel like the ultimate decision about those horror elements are just kind of perfunctory and don't mm. really illuminate... The character story, the way that I feel like it feels like the 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 this personal story of character development is thoughtful mm. and attempting to be taken really really seriously, and the vampire stuff is just sort of like and they're vampires. Also, they're vampires. Yeah, uh, it's like it's like in the uh, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror where uh, they're doing the night gallery. And they're uh-huh. showing like all the scary paintings, and they show the story behind the scary paintings. Mm. And then Bart Simpson was like, he shows like dogs playing poker, and he's like, "They're we dogs, made... and they're playing poker." Run! And Bart says, "We made a short for this uh, for this painting, but it turned out to be too intense." So we threw together something about vampires. Yeah, and that's kind of what they did. We made this like really intense psychological thriller, and just the vampire thing. I mean, I get it, I guess, but mm. like, I don't know. I just it just really just kind of flops at the in the finale for me 
And I wasn't, like, in love with it beforehand either. I just thought it was reasonably well made. Hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't really work. And it's a, and it's weird that the title has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, because it's called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Like I said, you, you would think that this is about some sort of calculated thing. So mm-hmm. you might be watching this movie, looking at all the other characters, thinking, when is it going to be revealed that this is, like, Diabolique? Yeah. And they've made a plan to torment... And drive crazy and eventually kill this mm-hmm. mentally unstable woman. For whatever reason. Yeah, they're whatever, inheritance, whatever it is. they're cultists, who cares? But like, yeah. They're just, the, maybe they're just the, cruel people. The oh, implication yeah. is let's, let us, hmm. you and me, the audience, the film, people within the movie, we're all going to scare Jessica to death. Not only does she not die to death, she is definitely not scared to death. Hmm. She's scared, but if she's scared to death, it's merely figurative. And it feels like, I, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to find out, actually. I would suspect this had a different title. And then once it got picked up for distribution, or uh-huh. once it got, like, finished, they were just like, man, we really can't call this, like, that time Jessica was worried for a while, and then there were vampires. We really got to spice this up. And, <laughs> it's, it sounds we like can't an- call it, like... What the, the the scaring or whatever we were gonna call it. Like we have to give it something. Scaring. We have to give it something that'll <laughs> pop on a poster. And let's scare Jessica to death is a great title. I suspect that a lot of people who voted for this on our Patreon, if I read the comments correctly, and most people weren't terribly familiar with most or any of the movies that were listed, kind of just went with the title because the title sounds cool. Sometimes the title is bullshit. <laughs> And that's what happens when you look at 1970s well, horror movies. The posters are amazing. The titles are exciting. And then you get there and it's a couple of people in a room and then someone dies. <laughs> what, I, what I appreciate about Let's Scare Jessica to Death is it's about this woman who is fighting off the fear that's in her. One yeah. of the first things that happens is she sees a mysterious figure in a graveyard and she's not really sure if that's a hallucination. She's afraid of everything. And by the end of the movie, when she's just sort of lost in this complete vortex of, of terror. Mm. Uh, and when it's revealed that there are actually are monsters, it, it's kind of like her mind snaps at that point. That's mm. the breaking point. And I, I like that, that arc. True. And the way that was presented. I, th- I, think, I think as a character piece, it's yeah. actually pretty good. It's just once the horror element is confirmed, it just feels like they, they mm. just thought that was enough. And it's like, no, I actually need you to do a little work. Like when you find out like, mm. And it's recent enough, I won't go into detail, but when you find out what Get Out is really about, uh-huh. it's not just like, oh, and then there's this horror thing. Like, no, no, no. That actually, like, adds elements and makes you rethink things that came before that you thought you knew what the horror was, but it's actually a little different. Mm-hmm. That's how you do that kind of big reveal. You want it to make everything more exciting. And here it just feels like we're just wrapping everything up now. Yeah. And um, that's a shame. But uh, it's not bad. Just, uh, it's, it's just didn't, didn't yeah. love it. Didn't love it. You can't. They can't all be winners. Uh, but that's less scare Jessica to death. Uh, next time on the critically acclaimed podcast, uh, we're going to be reviewing a bunch of movies. There's a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca on Netflix this week. Uh, there's a remake of The Witches, directed by Robert Zemeckis, coming up on uh, HBO Max. I think that's this week. That's this week. Yeah, um, and a bunch of other stuff besides, but those are two of the biggies. Uh, we also do have another poll uh, that's going to be up. We're looking at films on Peacock, um, and that poll will probably be up for the first day or so while this podcast is live. So if you want to go over and uh, and vote, if you're a patron, it's already right there. If you're not, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. For $1 a month, you get to vote 
uh, for all future episodes. And you get access to the Holy Batman podcast, yeah. where we review every single episode of the 1960s Batman. But higher tiers, you get different podcasts as well. Not on Disney+. Plus. All our yesterdays, our Star Trek podcast, which is weekly. Um, Only the Best, which is monthly, where we review every single uh, Academy Award nominee for Best Picture. Commentary tracks. This month, we're doing Sleepy Hollow. Also, uh, this month, we have at the Salem Horror Fest... Uh, they're doing a That's special right. online screening of the 20th anniversary of John Waters' really wonderful comedy, Cecil Be Demented. And we were asked to do a commentary track that you can get with that package. Yeah, so head on over to Salem Horror Fest. I think it's SalemHorrorFest.com. Yeah, uh, and you, uh, can, you can get that. Uh, it's, and, and part of the package is you, you get the movie, you get a Q&A with John Waters, mm-hmm. and you get our commentary track. Yeah. So it's very, very, very honored to have been a part of that. We love that movie. Uh, but the nominees for the films on Peacock, Francis Ford Coppola's Dementia 13, which is a very, 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 very early horror movie that he directed long before he made movies people liked. It's also in the public domain, so you'll f- <laughs> throw, find eight versions on YouTube today. Uh, the uh, post-apocalyptic virus cannibal medieval night cyborg movie Doomsday. Uh, which I think was a little underrated, but Whitney's never seen it. Yeah, from the uh, mid-2000s. Uh, the, Hammer, the Hammer Horror film Curse of the Werewolf, starring the uh, immortal Oliver Reed as the werewolf, which I believe is the only werewolf movie Hammer ever did. And also, uh, Qu- uh, I'm going to say Quentin, Clint Eastwood's, uh, I believe it's his directorial debut, play Misty for Me, uh, which is a stalker thriller starring Jessica Walter from Arrested Development and Archer, as a woman stalking Clint Eastwood. Scary. Uh, so I'll, we'll review one of those, whichever one you, our patrons, vote for. Thank you very, very much to all of our patrons in particular, without whom we couldn't be doing this. But thank you to everybody who listens to our podcasts. Mm. We're grateful to have you here. Thank you for being part of this community. Thank you for uh, loving cinema. Uh, it's something, obviously, Whitney and I are do. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's always nice to know that there are others out there who are interested and and uh, are, are curious what we thought. That's just we're really honored to be part of your weekly podcast intake. Um, but, uh, of course, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Simon. You can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you have uh, questions, concerns, curiosities, mm-hmm. ideas, suggestions, anything at all, really. Uh, we would love to hear from you. We might read your letter in an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've got mail. Uh, you may have also noticed that uh, episode zero is up this week. It is our last episode of Star Wars episode zero, mm-hmm. in which we've been discovering the prehistory of Star Wars. But starting at the end of the month, we're starting season two of episode zero, in which we will be exploring every week the prehistory of the Rocky Horror Picture Show Indeed. and looking at all of the amazing horror movies, sci-fi movies, and queer films that made Rocky Horror what it is. Mm. And so we're very, very excited about that. It's a different angle on film history, and uh, that's going to be awesome. I can't wait. It's an incredible list of films that we've got worked out for you. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, so, again, thank you, everybody, very, very much for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>